a lot of what I'm interested in doing is kind of getting people to value coffee a little bit more so that we can work in this direction. I think a lot of people feel constrained by the consumer mindset of like coffee should cost, you know, $8 a pound because that's what it cost most of my life. Uh, and I could buy it in a giant can in the grocery store. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Today on the show, we are featuring three classic This Is Taste conversations with some big names in coffee, James Hoffman, Nigel Price, and James Freeman. Each have carved out a unique place in specialty coffee, and I really hope you enjoy getting to know some of the most interesting people in the business. James Hoffman, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's really fun to talk to you. Huge fan of your YouTube, huge fan of coffee. Anyone who's listened to the show knows we've spoken with many in coffee. Um, it's a real passion of mine uh, to kind of educate, and that's why I'm such so drawn to the work you do on YouTube, the work you do with your books. So thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Um, let's get into this. What did you have today? What have you? What kind of coffee you're recording in the UK? It's morning here. You may have had one or two things enter your body, coffee-related. What, 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 what have you been drinking? Uh, I just got back from L.A., so I'm drinking a, a, a local roaster from there called Go Get em Tiger. Just had some yes. uh, of, of one of their Ethiopian coffees this morning, a couple of brews of that, just to kind of, you know, learn, get to know it a little bit. Nice. Uh, we launched our coffee issue back in 2018 at their, uh, you know, Silver Lake location um, or more Echo Park, uh, and those guys, those guys are dudes. So how's, how's Go Get em these days? pretty good uh i didn't get a chance to get to the cafe but a friend of mine works there and we caught up and um it's just nice to take a little coffee home excellent um did you drink anything else interesting in la when you were when you were there uh i was filming something out in the desert so my my actual time in la was pretty limited (laughs) wow i can't wait cryptic can you say anything about your desert session i don't know if i should uh all right it was it was kind of an experiment let's go with that I love that. Um, I love that because, and and you do with your show on YouTube, you're always uh, going places to discover interesting coffee related. You're, you're finding gear, vintage gear. You're you're just always exploring. So I, I bet there's something interesting happening there. I mean, I hope so. But yeah, like coffee's coffee's kind of niche and also really not niche at all. It's kind of it's it's everything, and it's also this weird thing that people get obsessed about. It's it's true, and I, my first question really is: I, I want to get a sense. Why is it so difficult then to talk about something that we put into our bodies one to three to six times a day? I think a big part of it is that most of us, quite early on in life, gain a pretty rudimentary understanding of coffee, and then at some point later on, someone's like, "Everything you know is wrong," and it's way more complicated. And the simple thing that's just like how people start their day turns out to be just massively complex and super interesting, but you know, you know, uh, challenging in a, in a bunch of ways. And people are like, well, no, 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 it's just coffee. Leave it alone. Don't make a simple, nice thing in my life complicated. And, you know, from our point of view, it's usually like, well, I'm not trying to make it complicated. I just want it to be more enjoyable. But that requires like a little bit of engagement. But I think ultimately it's that. We have a pretty fixed idea of coffee quite early in our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's that fixed idea that that holds us back, and and I love what you say. It is simply just coffee, and we do need to get down to the basics. Um, and I want to know what have you found has worked talking about coffee? You do it so well. You do, you democratize it, which I think is important. 
No one would ever call you a, a coffee snob. I don't think I wouldn't. Maybe some have. No, people, I mean, people, it's the internet. People still call me a snob. Um, <laughs> people are still angry about everything. I think yes, true. what has worked well for me is understanding that I am in many ways ridiculous. And my <laughs> interest and passion about coffee is unusual and borderline hilarious. And and that's okay. Like, uh, I think it's funny too. And, and you know, passion is, is a great thing to, to kind of get people interested in what you're doing. People who are passionate can be very compelling talking about their particular passion. But I, I, I think being able to laugh at myself along the way makes it easier mm -hmm. to kind of be like, okay, let's just hear what you have to say. You know you're ridiculous. This is ridiculous. But now that I'm allowed to laugh, what have you actually got to say? So I think that's helped. And I think I, I kind of moved past the point of sort of expecting everyone to do the same thing or enjoy the same thing or there being a, a right way to enjoy coffee. I want people to enjoy the coffee they drink more. And that may send them on a particular journey, but it may not. And, it, you know, they may not move much past a really dark roast with a bunch of cream in it. But if I can get them to enjoy that even more, I count that as winning and, and kind of success for what I do. James, it's such a great point of view. It's why we love you. And I think um, having that, you, 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 you democratize, as I say, you, you engage. And I think the way you um, are able to make it okay to put cream in coffee, but like subtly hint that maybe you're not getting the best out of it is why uh, more people should be speaking about coffee like you. My question to start is, You've written this book about coffee at home, which is which is different than writing about an atlas of coffee and farms and agriculture. So I want to know just right away, how can we make our practice at home a little better? It, it feels like a difficult thing to synthesize down to like one thing. Um, 100%. You wrote a book about it, and I'm going to link to it in the show notes. <laughs> Buy the book. <laughs> I, I think it's more like um, just just I think it's a, it's a mindset of like there's an opportunity here. Right, like if you have a mindset of "Ooh, this could be better," then I think that's going to be the game-changing thing. Where suddenly your approach to how you brew or or how you even drink the coffee, all that kind of stuff. If you just have this at the back of your head of like, "This is great, but it could be better," and and I could make it better, and that could be fun, then I I think that kind of openness of mind around this stuff is probably the most important thing, and is is the kind mm -hmm. of common characteristic amongst the kind of passionate coffee community online. And I think you see the pushback, most of the pushback around what I do is like, no, I like my coffee the way it is, leave it alone. And I'm just trying to be like, you can enjoy it, that's great. But uh, but surely you understand this, just like you can make it like 10% better. Yeah. I'm sure there's a way. <laughs> Nothing is perfect in this world. You could, you could take that journey a little bit further on. And I think once that's your mindset, once you're like, ooh, this could be better and that could be fun to, to, to go on that journey of improvement – then I think you're on a pretty good path. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you some specific questions that kind of get us into that journey of improvement, which I think is a really great way to put it. And and I just one kind of general question to start, though, is the pandemic definitely changed the way we interact with coffee. What do you think? Like, what, what, what has it done in the positive side? Oh, I think it had a really weird but strangely positive effect that was huge, which was yeah. I think people um, – couldn't go to cafes suddenly and realized how valuable the coffee experience was to them. And I think a lot of people 
the coffee experience was just drinking a really nice cup of coffee. Uh, for other people, it was just like that being a nice moment in their day that wasn't work and wasn't home life. It was that kind of the mm -hmm. third space that they talked about. And I think that when we were stuck in our homes, we wanted something of the coffee experience in the house. And that meant a lot of people bought some coffee equipment, like a lot of coffee equipment yep. got sold around the world. And yeah. people were like, oh, well, I should learn a little bit more about making coffee. And so there was a, a you know a massive transition from coffee out of home to coffee in home. And um, that's been great. I think people have a greater understanding of coffee brewing, a greater appreciation of both coffee itself and actually of cafes too. I think yeah, knowing me how too. hard I agree. it can be to brew great espresso at home yep. has made a cafe very appealing. Like they'll come, they'll do this for you. And and give you a nice place to sit and something delicious to eat, and and you know I don't really see the cafe competing with the home in that regards, but but um yeah I I think it had a, a big positive impact and you know obviously I, I I was someone who benefited from people being like I want to make coffee at, at home how do I do that I'll go on the internet and uh, it seems a good number of them found you're me. the guy yeah you're the guy and and I think that the hand brewing wave pun intended, because the Kalita Wave, the, the right, Chemex, right. the V60s, you, know, you couldn't find them on Amazon. I mean, the, the Chemex filters were, I mean, people were buying them from shops around the country in America, which was amazing because, you know, you couldn't buy it on Amazon. You had to go to like a random shop to buy it. And I feel like hand brewing, once that became part of the practice for at home work at home, fully agree with you that there's a new appreciation for origin, for buying a little bit, paying a little bit more for coffee mm -hmm. and just having this moment where coffee is is more than just that morning push the button and, and go thing. I think, you know, we, we talk a lot about rituals in coffee. And I think um, we definitely all had a time in our lives when we needed space and structure and moments of something that wasn't staring at a computer screen. And I feel like coffee really neatly fit in there for so many people. James, can we talk about price? Um, you know, it's something I've talked about on the podcast with Jeff Watts, with Nigel Price, with Nicely Abel, with Jordan Michaelman, Ashley Rodriguez. These are all people I deeply respect in coffee, uh, along with yourself. And it seems like the, the refrain with all of these conversations has been this. We do not pay enough for coffee. I'd like you to respond to that. And the second part is, what should the price be? <sighs> This is, I mean, it's a really difficult question. I think the, the the neat answer is yes, we don't pay enough for coffee. We need to pay more. Um, I'm curious if you got like a consistent answer on what it should be from from everyone else or if they were a, a bit divided across the board on that one. Well, I, I feel like right now, um, you know, depending on size between eight ounces and 20 ounces, uh, a bag, um, it, it seems like the nine to $15 range um is too low. I think people are saying like the forty to fifty dollar a bag price point, which seems astronomical in the scale of things. But given how much you get out of a bag, how actually it's such an affordable luxury, uh, that was a price point that we hit. I hit upon with I believe Jeff and Ashley. I think Nigel was also talking about how two ounces of COE cup of excellence coffee can, you know, be in the hundreds of dollars, how that makes sense given how much we pay for mediocre bourbons and really like bad macro brews at bars. We pay $8 for Michelob light. So I think that, that's, that's kind of the, the, the summary of the, our conversations, but what, what do you think? I think the, the, um, the two states in the U.S. that grow coffee are a pretty good kind of case study, which is what happens if you grow 
coffee with kind of modern day costs and overhead and cost of labor and all that kind of stuff, which is California and Hawaii. And, um, you know, quality wise, I think that the coffee from Central and South America is often superior. It's better terroir, better altitude, better, better all that kind of stuff, but, but not nearly as expensive. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think you'd need to kind of double the price of coffee probably to, to have it be getting towards a kind of sustainable and sensible price for the kind of modern globalized world. I mean, domestic coffees are not considered by many in cafes to be prized. Do you, do you drink Hawaiian and California coffees? Because you just don't see them on menus too often. No, I mean, they, they're, they're hyper niche. They're hyper expensive. Yeah. Uh, and they, they, they don't have the kind of blind cup tasting kind of cup quality of a lot of other yeah. coffees. Um, but that's kind of interesting that suddenly they have to charge what they charge. You know, yeah. Hawaii gets away with it a little bit more because I think if you go to Hawaii and have a nice time and you want to take a bag of coffee home, you're buying mm-hmm. more than a bag of coffee in that particular moment. But um, yeah, I, I, I think those are semi-sustainable coffee producing you know, parts of the world compared to many others. So, yeah, it's 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 a difficult one. It's one where, you know, a, a lot of what I'm interested in doing is kind of getting people to value coffee a little bit more so that we can work in this direction. I think a lot of people feel constrained by the consumer mindset of like coffee should cost, mm-hmm. you know, $8 a pound because that's what it cost most of my life. Uh, and I could buy it in a giant can in the grocery store, and that's coffee, and this is coffee, and these are the same thing, right? Um, but in terms of that wider just shift, yeah, I think I think $30 a pound probably and up is yeah. where we'd be looking. Yeah, I love that we've, we've set the baseline. A good question to me what others were saying because it, we're never going to have a consensus, but I think the idea generally is more is better, um, and as as you said, more people start to homebrew, buy the subscriptions, buy the stuff online, they're going to maybe pay a little bit more. It's going to become part of their practice. Yeah, I think your point earlier on about it being a kind of tremendous value luxury is, is kind of worth noting that the cheapest coffee might be 6 to $8 a pound, but some of the best coffee in the world is not 600 It's 60 <laughs> you know what I mean? Like 10 times from the very cheapest to some of the best in the world. There's not a big multiplier. You can apply, you know, you think about whiskey or wine or anything else where there's a sort of broader cultural capital to the product. You have these much bigger multipliers. But coffee, the best coffee in the world, for what it is, I think is very affordable. 100% agree. You know, you can get a an auction coffee from, you know, southern Ethiopia, yeah, for like $45 for a few ounces. That gives you like, you know, several mornings or afternoons of pleasure Compared to like that really mediocre marketed bottle of tequila right. that you paid the same amount, right? I mean, it's just crazy, right? Yeah, we. I think we 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 still value certain mind altering drugs above others, without yeah, really exactly. good reason. I would say. It. I love that you bring up the drug element of coffee because it certainly is, and it's 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 something that we need to recognize more, just in creating value, especially with the legalization of cannabis. Um, <laughs> right. Right. I, I think. I also think that even when you get very passionate about flavor, you can't deny the other aspect of coffee consumption. You know, I feel like 
doing what I do online, there's still so many conversations about caffeine and people's concerns about it, people's interest in it. It's still a massively motivating factor in coffee drinking. And yet I feel like we, we the sort of specialty end, doesn't really want to talk about it too much because mm-hmm. we're interested in flavor. But I think we need to talk about it because it's a big part of, of how and why we drink coffee. Truly. And it leads to a question and and let's get in this section. I'd like to get into some of the X's and O's of home brewing and what you cover in your great book, The Best Coffee at Home. And the first thing is, you know, when somebody says to you that they like strong coffee, what do you say to them? Uh, I, I always hope for the opportunity for a conversation. And so I'd be like, what, sure. when, when you say strong, do you mean like like a like a really kind of harsh, bitter flavor, like you like a little kick in the cup or you just want a ton of flavor in there? Because it, I need to understand if they're looking for a darker roast or if they want something that really they can brew and effectively make into a genuinely strong cup. Right. It's having that conversation and asking more questions is, is definitely my approach. I think strength seems to hold people back because they don't think about sweetness and flavor profile. They think about bold and harshness. Right. But, but I mean... How do you deal with the term sweetness, which I, Ashley and I had a great conversation about that, and I'll link to that in the show notes. I think um, the, the tricky bit about sweetness is I, I think that the sweetness in specialty coffee is present and obvious, but also a different kind of sweetness than a lot of people would associate with sweetened coffee. And I feel like when you sell very strongly on sweetness, people are expecting almost a little table sugar in there. You know what I mean? Uh, and for me... The, one of the best things about specialty coffee is one of the hardest things to talk about, which is almost the absence of defect, right? Like there's nothing, yep. there's nothing wrong with it, and that's amazing. And that that's not like a ringing endorsement of a product. Like there's nothing, there's nothing <laughs> right. wrong with it, um, but that's kind of a big part of it. And I think when you take away bitterness and harshness and astringency and negative flavors, you end up with this very positive characteristic that you're like, oh, it's kind of like it's sweet. And, and that's the difficult bit to communicate because it's not, you know, the minute you add a few grains of sucrose to a cup of coffee, you're like, oh, no, that's, that's sweetened. I can taste that. Yeah. It's a totally different thing. But this sweetness, I think it's still the right word for how it tastes. But it, it is almost, to me, a, a tied entirely into this sort of absence of negative flavor that comes with it. Two interesting points. First is just the idea of the word sweetness, which is a, a total disservice. I agree fully because sweetness in most lexicon is adding sugar, which is not what you're talking about. It's almost like umami when that became part of the vogue to talk about food. It was like this unknown flavor, but we knew it was good. Right. So that's interesting. The other part is just the idea of um, the absence of something, the absence of like that is like we are a, a culture in food that strives for extreme flavor profiles, be it extreme bitter or an extreme, like we we want our age, this and that age marks means extremities. But like with coffee, it's the opposite. It's purity. So interesting, James. I, I love that point. Yeah, I, I think um, we end up also then, once we kind of get into this world, then chasing the extremes of of that world where you have these super acidic coffees or you've got these extremely weird fermented coffees and mm-hmm. those kind of things. But... Yeah, at its heart, for me, that that this that this sort of um, yeah, the absence of defect. I really I need a better phrase than that. I don't know what it is. Yeah, it is, that is the correct phrase in my head. It's just the bad it's one a, to say out loud. But yeah, it's a communication thing. Part of it, and 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 I think that the thing I like about that is that 
you do a tasting with someone and, and you tell them to look for like cherries or pear or caramel and they're like, it tastes hmm. like coffee. But if you say, isn't this one less bitter? Isn't it less harsh? They're like, oh yeah, it is. I get it. It's smoother. And you're like, great. Yeah. Beautiful word because it, it, it is soft and, and approachable and friendly and like it's kind to you. And cheaper coffee is not. And it needs a little yeah. buffering with things like cream and sugar because it has that harshness, that bitterness, that whatever it's going to be, that defect mm. to it that makes it less enjoyable. Yeah. I frame it like in spatial um, like association. Like there's the coffee you get at, literally at the hospital when you're and then there's the coffee you get at McDonald's and then there's the coffee you get at like a diner or an okay restaurant. And then there's a coffee you get at like Intelligentsia. Right. And like they're all, like that's the way I kind of look at it, right? It's like the different spaces you consume it. It's weird. So James, um, what do you say to somebody who says they like quote unquote Guatemalan coffee, which, you know, I love my mom. She always says this and very challenging um, statement because it doesn't say much. No, and and early on in my career, I was I was re- this was like a hobby horse for me of like, how dare you hmm. desire the coffee from one particular country? You know, right. like Brazil <laughs> as an example is like two right. thirds the size of Europe. It'd be like I want some European wine, and no one would sell you that. You know, like it's 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 this. But I think for for me, if I'm if genuinely trying to get to the bottom of what they want then I have to understand what they they think of as Guatemalan coffees. I'm like, do you always buy the same bag from the same roaster? If you're at the store, do you just head towards anything that's from Guatemala and you generally have a good time uh, to try and understand what taste association they have built to that origin? Because some origins do have kind of taste characteristics. Others have a massive diversity of flavor. And, and, you know, Guatemala is one which is actually pretty diverse and you can go from the kind of heavier, chocolatier end through to fruitier things to more floral things. So that that's kind of harder. But if someone says, I like coffees from Brazil or I like coffees from Ethiopia as an example, Ethiopia is a great example, then you probably like something fruity and floral and fun and light and, you know, interesting and complex and unusual. That's good mm-hmm. information. Um, so for me, that the, the question has to be, Tell me what you think of when you think of Guatemalan coffee. Is it this one brand? Is it just any coffee from Guatemala you have a good time with? What is it? Well said. I think definitely asking more questions once again is the way to kind of get to that point. Um, let's get to talk about brewing at home. I want to get a little bit of your take on kind of the most your, – what's your favorite way first to brew at home, to, to hand brew coffee or even may espresso? I'm not going to even go no, there. No, it can no be either one. No espresso at home. No espresso at home for me. All right. No, thank you. We'll get to that. Is work in yes. a number of levels for me. Um, favorite way to make coffee at home, still probably like a V60 or a pour over of some kind. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think I'm overly wedded to like one in particular. There's usually a, a few floating around from work. Um, but yeah, I, I it's just enough ritual for me. Like it's just enough where I have to pay a little attention and take a little time and that's good. And I still enjoy, and it sounds weird, pouring water onto coffee uh, after 20 odd years of doing it. But like I still just enjoy that process. And I don't really know why, but I think it's fun. And I'm not I'm not alone in that, which is reassuring. So yeah, Absolutely I, I not. think for me, if I'm making one or two cups, it's a pour over. Yeah, I agree hard. And what about like batch brewing, push button brewing? Is there any... Is there any positive with that way of brewing at home? 100%. I think there Great. are now genuinely good little batch brewers out there. And I think there's a, a bunch of different scenarios in which they fit really well. Um, I, I think if you need a lot of coffee, it's a great way to go. If you don't like making coffee before you've had coffee, 
then I think uh, a batch brew is great. You can set it up the night before. Yeah, yeah, you'll lose a little bit of quality from the, the coffee being ground at like 11 p.m. and brewed at 6. But uh, ultimately, at 6 a.m., I'm not sure anyone's taste buds are at their true sharpest. You know what I mean? <laughs> so like a little timer function. Coming downstairs to fresh brewed coffee, it's a glorious thing. If you're up early. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. So, yeah, I, I think that historically the super cheap coffee makers for home were not the best, especially at brewing more interesting coffees, specialty coffees. They were kind of fine at brewing darker roasts and kind of cheaper coffees. But but that has shifted and you need to spend a little bit more, but not like a crazy amount more to get a really good little batch brewer at home. Yeah. Yep. And you use it so much. Let's just keep, let's stress that point. This is like a daily ritual. Absolutely. So you, you would likely invest in many things uh, that you use daily, but sometimes coffee is forgotten. Um, you recently published this amazing video series. I think it was two parts, and I'll link to it in the show notes. You rated 32 coffees from American grocery stores, yeah. which I think is so interesting because it was all blind. We're talking Folgers, Chuck Full of Nuts, Starbucks. What did you learn from this from this uh, this test? Uh, I learned a few things actually. Some of them were super interesting. Um, I learned that the spectrum of roast was much broader than I anticipated, and actually that the spectrum of quality was much broader than I had anticipated too. Um, you know that there was some really surprisingly good tasting coffee there in a in a sort of world I had kind of written off I kind of went into it expecting mm-hmm. to have a bad time um you know I I, I was broadly I, I mean I had some coffees I didn't like at all but I would say I was broadly pleasantly surprised by the kind of overall experience you tasted Duncan just to name one the original blend and you had a really positive response to it which I I mean your response it was all blind genuinely positive when it was positive. You you liked some of this coffee, relatively speaking, right? And Duncan was one. And McCafe, which is the McDonald's house brand, made it through as well to uh, the not the second round, at least. So do you want to know the really interesting thing about these coffees? Uh, yeah. The thing that I will at some point explore further in a video. It, 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 these are not the same coffees being brewed in store. In fact, in many cases, it's not even the same roasting company producing the coffee. So a different coffee company will roast coffee for Duncan uh, or Tim Horton or whoever for the in-store drip that you're being served, and someone else entirely will produce the retail product. It won't be the same raw coffees. It won't be the same roast profiles. It will just say Duncan on the front. It makes perfect sense because you want you probably as a company are making more money from the direct to consumer or the, the the CPG model. So you want that that product to be a little bit better than what you're serving in the restaurant, which is pure utility. That's just my take. What do you think? Yeah, I I I, I see that argument. It just seems confusing to set two different expectations <laughs> right. for what like Duncan's coffee tastes like. You know, if I get a cup yeah. in store and I then I like it and I buy a bag and take it home and it tastes a little different, that's kind of confusing. Equally, if I buy a bag and I'm like, oh, I should just check out the coffee from Duncan, and I have a very different experience, then that's also kind of confusing. It's just, yeah, it, the whole world of, of like how the big corporate coffee manufacturer works it wrecks my mind. Like it, Starbucks is one of yeah. the biggest roasters in the world, and yet Nestle roasts a bunch of coffee for them. And you're like, what? Yeah. Why? What? Why does why does yeah. this happen? This makes no sense. You can roast your own coffee, Starbucks. You've got all the facilities all over the world, but somehow Nestle can do it cheaper or theoretically 
for whatever they think good is better. I don't know. It's just interesting. We'll let you tap into that 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 reporting piece because I think I'd love to find out the answer. And I'm not going to spoil the winner of that of that uh, of that test. And I'll link to it again in the show notes to see which one won. I think that's amazing. Um, let's get into, let's talk about espresso. Um, okay. Like a lot of, a lot of complicated thoughts. We've talked about this with Jimmy Butler, with, with Ashley Rodriguez and Jeff Watson, many in coffee and especially coffee, um, have a love hate relationship with espresso. So first question to me is how the fuck do you taste espresso? I, I don't understand it personally. How do you mean, what, where, where do you find the challenge? It's just, it's overwhelmingly intense. Yeah, I, I don't find uh, a, a structural nuance um, it, with the coffee um, out of that with, when it's pressurized and brewed that way. I just, I find it, I, I know bad espresso, um, and it goes back to your absence of, of blemishes and absence of um, how a pure coffee tastes better. I just can't wrap my head around what a good espresso tastes like. So I think I think one of the annoying and persistent myths of coffee is that espresso, if you don't drink it quickly, it dies, right? Uh, and and that's, that's just not true. If you drink espresso really hot or, or pretty fresh, it's so hot that it's actually much harder to taste the nuance in it anyway. And that's good news if the, if the espresso isn't like perfect because it's too hot to taste some of the imperfections. But if you let espresso cool down a little bit, it gets way easier to taste. Mm-hmm. And generally what I'm chasing with espresso is this, uh, you know, Slightly nebulous term, but like balance, right? Like I want, I want a little bit of everything going on there. I want a little bit of acidity, but not dominant acidity. I want a little bit of bitterness, but not dominant bitterness. I want some sweetness playing in the middle there. I want nice texture. And if I get all of those things, generally I'm happy. And any additional flavors, any kind of character that comes from the coffee itself is a benefit, is, is a bonus. It's just enjoyable mm-hmm. to me. But, but good espresso is, is hard to do well. Because you're just working at these very high concentrations. It's high concentrations of coffee solubles, but also high concentrations of acid as well. So it's really easy for espresso to just be unpleasantly, dominantly sour. And that's just that's just no fun in my book. Yeah, I think we you write about the confusion between bitter and sour with espresso and how that sour we perceive as sour can be sometimes prized, but unfortunately it's not. It's not great in experience-wise to have an overly sour shot of espresso. Not at all. And I think for a lot of people, they'll sip it. They'll be like, I don't like that. There is a, there is a dominant attacking taste. It's coffee. What's wrong with coffee usually? Oh, it's usually bitter. And so they're like, oh, this coffee is too bitter. And, and right. for years, this drove baristas, you know, crazy because... We had said as an industry, if you get too much acidity, you've under-extracted it. And if you get too much bitterness, you've over-extracted the coffee. And there's loads of people being like, this espresso is too bitter, it's too bitter, it's too bitter. And they're like, how is this? How am I over-extracting this coffee? It's not brewing too slow. And the truth was they were just doing the opposite. And so it's, it's, it's frustrating feedback to get, which is like, this coffee's too bitter. And you kind of want to be like, well, do you mean... <laughs> the sides of my tongue tingle and my mouth is watering and I'm sort of, it's been a bit like biting into the side of a lemon. And they're like, oh yeah, no, that's it. That's it. And you're like, great. That's, that is sourness. And that's <laughs> the problem that you, you have right now. We'll fix the espresso or whatever. But like, um, yeah, <sighs> it is a confusing thing. It's so, and then to add another layer, let's just go there because when we talk about espresso, we're talking about shots out of the, out of the machine, just on the counter. 
But most people, when you're thinking about espresso, it's you're adding milk, you're adding dairy, or you're adding non-dairy, right. and you're adding um, something that is has absolutely erases any of the th- the items we're talking about the last five minutes, which is the flavor profiles of a shot. How do you square that away? And I think the big complication is that that is where bars make their money is from these drinks that we, of course, love. We love cortados. We love lattes. We love a cappuccino before nine. Like, it's part of our culture. But when you're thinking about tasting coffee, which you write about extensively, it complicates matters. For sure. I mean, it, to do, to kind of really understand the inherent value of a more interesting coffee, once you've put four, six, eight ounces of milk on top, it, it yeah, it's impossible. Um but but from my point of view, I'm back to like, I need you to value this thing. I need you to enjoy it that little bit more. That's back to where you, you know, it gets easier to push the angle of like, isn't this sweet? Don't you have a load of flavor, but not too much bitterness? Isn't this all of these good things? And and I think for, for people who don't yet want to drink black coffee, I, I don't want to tell them that what they're doing is wrong because that ends our relationship. Right, that that yeah. ends. There's no future conversation. If I've been like, "Hey, that thing that you really like that we have sold you and taken your money for, that's wrong. That's the incorrect way to do this." You rightly would call me an ass and would not wish to hmm. come back to my coffee shop. So I have to, you know, however I'm going to do this, I have just to make you curious. That's the that's the 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 pathway for me when you're like okay, I'm, you know, what is the deal with all of these different coffees? Or what is the deal with this coffee that you're selling over here? And or, or why did I get this, you know, guest coffee that made my cappuccino taste like blueberries? Like what what happened here? Mm. I need a question. Because once you ask me a question, you're fair game and we can have an interesting conversation. We but, can but I have to leave you curious. And so I'm totally on board with with milk into coffee. Uh and, and I'm you know, let's be honest. Milk is genuinely sweet. Fat does create a really nice texture. Foamed milk is really enjoyable to drink when it's done right. That is, hedonically, a delightful thing. Like like a really great cappuccino is a very enjoyable experience. And I can't deny that. It's not the the sort of the the transparency of flavor that you would get from drinking black coffee, but I can't deny it's as close to dessert as is socially acceptable at, at first thing in the morning. You know, and, and so if you enjoy it, if it's if it's valuable to you, I think we're winning. If I can make you curious, even better. Love it, James. Thank you for sharing all that because I think you definitely democratize it once again um, in the way that um, takes that like coffee snob snobbery out of the, the equation, which I think a lot of people associate when we talk about coffee, about snobbery and about milk. I mean, whenever I mess up a, a hand brew and I over extract and it just tastes bad, I just add a little milk and it makes it better. It, it just makes it, it fixes it, and I lo- I love it. I, I love I love adding milk to coffee sometimes. So I, I'm with you. Uh, question about flavored coffees. I feel like there is a bit of a rising tide towards moving, especially coffee moving towards flavored coffees. Ironically or not, but I just feel people are talking about hazelnut coffee for whatever reason. Are you observing this at all? This is, and and this is said with no. Um, sort of a <laughs> subtext or anything else. Uh, I feel like a distinctly North American thing. I do not in the UK or Europe. It's just never really been a thing. Like we've never just. I, I'm sure it is available, but but it's never in coffee shops. It's never really in grocery stores. So I, I don't really ever see flavored coffees. I think specialty is is kind of going about it in this really interesting way, where you're starting to see some producers infuse things into the green raw coffee. 
which mm-hmm. is somehow, you know, which is kind of interesting, um, mostly because it's a way for a producer to make more money rather than someone down the line making more money. And generally speaking, I'm pro producers making more, more money whenever they can. But I feel like we're still mostly in a space where people either want coffee to be cheap and, and then kind of tempered the kind of the badness tempered by sugar or potentially flavorings, or people want coffee to be as coffee as possible. Uh, and that's about transparency of flavor, of terroir, all of that kind of stuff. So I haven't seen that the same way. Mm-hmm. Well, to your point about uh, flavored coffees, I think it is truly North American. And, and I grew up going to a place called Gloria Jean's Coffee Beans in the mall. And like hazelnut coffee in like 1995 was like my first coffee. And my God, I loved it. I loved hazelnut coffee. I've never, I've never had like a, like I, I, I've, I've had a bag, I've smelled it. I've never just had someone serve me flavored coffee my whole life. I probably should James. do that at some point. James, I mean, if you're ever in New York, I'm just going to hand deliver uh, a, 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 you know, a bag and hand brew you some hazelnut coffee. All right. There's, I think I know some chefs who, who actually talk about it, like, like in between services, just loving, and they call it shit coffee, but like loving just a hazelnut and milk. It's almost like its own food group. Yeah. I could see it being like a whole other thing. Like, and, and I feel like coffee has space for whole other things. Like I don't mind a frappuccino. I think they can be a good time. People get you know, upset about them, but I'm like, no, no, it's like a lot of sugar and, and whatever in a, in a cup, but it's a nice time. Uh, and so, yeah, like, uh, you know, I, I, I think my problem ends up being intellectually when it's a way to justify buying cheaper, more exploitative coffee and uh, that, you know, like, you like, and then adding value to it away from origin. That's when, you know, part of me gets a little less comfortable with it. But mm-hmm. again, if people are having a good time, I can work with that. A few more questions. Broad question. How do we as a culture get more people to pay attention to specialty coffee? Is it through celebrity? I mean, we get the George Clooney push button bullshit, but we also get guys like Jimmy Butler um, who are doing um, amazing work with their own. Like he has this company, Big Face. Mm -hmm. And like it's changing the way a lot of people who maybe haven't thought about the younger generation thinking about specialty coffee. Can you point to any... Other examples of, of the way coffee is "quote unquote" going mainstream in an interesting way. Yeah, I think there's been a. Uh, I think the most obvious kind of coffee brand in the U.S. would probably be Chamberlain Coffee, which is Emma Chamberlain, who's kind of transcended from being a sort of massive YouTuber into someone kind of doing Vogue's red carpet questions at the, at the Met Gala. Yeah, uh, and Chamberlain Coffee has been really interesting as a kind of way to see how a younger generation wants to see itself reflected in the coffee it drinks, right? Like um, in, in loads of different cultures, you've seen the kind of push-pull of like, uh, I think Japan is a good example. So like the, the sort of the, the big rise of specialty coffee in Japan was all centered around espresso because hand-drip coffee was, was how your parents made it. And there was right. this pushback <laughs> of like, I don't, I'm not them, I'm different to them, I'm not going to make coffee like them. Uh, uh, coffee's still a massive part of my life, but it's going to be different. And you know, here we've seen, uh, I feel like cold brew has been a big part of that transition where like just normalizing drinking loads of coffee all the time, which obviously I'm on board with, but uh, but mm-hmm. I feel like the brands and the look and the kind of conversations about how coffee tastes or why you pick this over that, that is, that is sort of changing to reflect the generations drinking it. And I think that's interesting. I think coffee has seemed to be um, an easy 
influencer brand opportunity. I think there's kind of a few big YouTubers who've launched kind of coffee brands now. Uh, and I guess there's an ecosystem out there to kind of roast coffee and put it in packages that with their face on or whatever uh, to make that relatively easy to do. And in a world obsessed with recurring revenue, then yeah. of course coffee makes sense. It's something people drink every day. And so if you... As a, as a YouTuber or an internet celebrity or celebrity or whatever you want to be, can find a way into people's homes every single day, then you can actually build a business, you know, that way rather than trying to sell a hoodie or a t-shirt or, or that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think coffee's been interesting as a, a vehicle for that. And I think we'll see more and more and more of it. Yeah, and it's not all bad. I mean, I love that you're saying, I mean, there's all this white space in this industry that you care so deeply about and this opportunity to to grow appreciation, be it through ready-to-drink um, coffees through influencers on TikTok. I mean, even even that can't be that bad. It's getting people away from folders not to pick on that brand but or chock full of nuts or, or these brands that maybe aren't giving a shit about sourcing the way that we hope they would. Maybe this ready-to-drink brand will actually give the farmer a little bit of spotlight like Jimmy Butler has. Right. That would be, that would be good. I think the tricky bit is that you know, you can't care about everything, right? Like you can't, there's too many things in the world. It's all too interesting. And so you, you don't have enough attention or care to care about everything. And, and if we say specialty is only successful when people deeply care about it, then we massively limit the audience because, you know, people care deeply about cars or shoes or a bunch of other hobbies that they have, right? Like this, you know, I'm not obsessive about every single thing that I eat, drink, by whatever else I can't do it my brain breaks um, but if we can make uh, if we can make coffee a positive part of your day that that is worth the time and attention that you do give it that gives us a chance to be a sustainable industry and so yeah however we get there I'm kind of open to that love that James this is just why I think we all just love your point of view and your perspective um, you always have a great high level thought like that so Thank you very much. I'm I'm gushing a little bit, but I just really love coffee so much, and I love the way you talk about it, and you're such a, a amazing supporter of the industry. I just love it. That's very kind of you. Thank you. James, we asked all guests on the Taste Podcast, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no crushing deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have unlimited money to make this project happen, what would that book be? I'm, I'm torn between, would my project be a coffee project? Or would it just be another kind of fascination of mine? Uh, I'd love to hear the latter. I'd love to hear the latter if you want to go. If I want, if I could, may probe you and push you in that direction. Uh, I was like, I think it was Dan Barber said that like American cuisine is ultimately damned by its 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 destroyed by plenty. Like it never had to work yeah. hard for flavor. It never it, it always had the choicest cuts. Yeah. Right, it, there was always plenty. And you take like a lot of French cooking is born out of well, we have a little bit of this pig left over. How do mm -hmm. we make it good? And I and you know there's a lot of um, culinary history around. Okay, we don't have much to work with here. Let's work a little harder. Let's be a little cleverer in how we do this. But I don't really know. With I'm kind of fascinated by that. Um, but I don't really know what the the cookbook of that is. I guess the the most surprising ways to make terrible things delicious. Ah. Terrible things being terrible, uh, like the awful, the, the bits. awful through to just like difficult vegetables or, you know what I mean? Like uh, as a species, we have a long history of being like, this is awful, but I'm not going to give up. You know what I mean? I'm going to keep going. I'm going to work this out. I'm going to do all, like olives. Like I don't know how we got to olives. 
probably should learn that one day. But I've eaten an olive <laughs> off a tree, which no one should ever do because that's no. one of the worst things you can ever do. I didn't know. I was young. I was naive. Yeah. I just learned I liked <laughs> olives. I was like, there's an olive tree. And I was like, no. well, how, did we, how did we work out how to make olives good? Why do we keep persisting? I don't know. A, I'm fascinated by the persistence. So many like um, baking recipes fall apart if you don't hit a really specific ratio. How, how how did we work out that? Why did we keep trying? Yeah. After so many collapsed souffles, why was someone like, no, yeah. no, no, this should work with no good reason to think that it would. They persisted. It's, and I, I think that's that's the, the, the history of persistence in the face of failure is really interesting to me in, in cooking. 18th century France did not have TikTok, did not have distraction. No, they, 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 could, they could focus. <laughs> but, you know, it's the belief that some way you're going to get to good. And you're like, why would you think that? Why would you think one yeah. day a souffle will happen? But then it does. And you're like, that was amazing. Well done. James Hoffman, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed my time. Nigel Price, welcome to the Taste Podcast. I'm glad you have me. This is amazing. Thanks. I'm so ha- happy to have you here. I'm, we've, we've talked a while, and I interviewed you for the Monday interview a couple years ago. Yeah. And um, you're a cool guy. You are an incredible coffee professional, and we're going to talk about that. appreciate that. I'm trying anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're beyond trying. Let me, let me ask you from the jump. What, 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 have you, what, what coffees have you had today? Let's, let's go over it. We're recording this at around noon, um, midweek. What have you had? Today I had a started day with a Mexican uh, natural that was roasted by black and white roasters yeah, in North Carolina. Definitely. They're they're kind of like our anchor roaster. I mean, as you know, we are multi-roaster. And um, I was almost late because I was going to brew another cup to yeah. take with me because it was just so good. I mean, it's... Uh, I love what I do. Yeah. <laughs> you and so that you've had one cup of of drip coffee today. Just one, yeah. No espresso. <laughs> no espresso. Very telling. We'll get to that. <laughs> I love I'll share mine. I had some yes please. I, I took the bus early, so I, I had an early at a V60 uh a yes please blend. Wow. Okay. Um at home. So I home brewed that. Um, which I love. I love Yes Please. Those guys yeah, they're out doing, in LA. They're doing good work, yeah. Definitely. Shout out to Tonks and Sumi. Those guys are great. And then I came to the city and I went to Irving Farm. Um, they have a little cafe near us and decent. Not bad. Yeah. yeah. They they do the job. Gets the job done. Um, we were just talking off mic about the, the lack of, of real multi-roaster uh, cafes in Midtown where we're recording. Do you want to just explain what drip is drip, drip coffee makers. I want to call it its property right, because right. I love that. <laughs> no, it's cool because like coffee makers is like great. So what is a multi-roaster coffee maker? What do you do? Primarily is sourcing or curating maybe too complicated of a term for it. But it's um like putting together roasters from literally around the world that we love. Um, and I say we because I do this in conjunction with a lot of the baristas that we hire. I mean – um. Some of these guys can talk circles around me in terms of coffee, which is, um, I think, an important part of our concept as well. Because a lot of the people that work for us aren't just baristas. Uh, most of the, I want to say most of the recs we get are from the other baristas. Um, so to answer your question, <laughs> um, it's pretty much curating um, an experience for guests who may not want to pay a ton of money in shipping to order coffee from 
one, two, or half a dozen different uh, roasters around the world. Um, they can come and pretty much grab anything off the shelf, and it's going to be good. Depends on how adventurous they are. Yeah. Um, and then the drip name is telling because yeah. you, you're a coffee bar and, and shop and store. You uh, sell espresso. You can get a cortado. Great. But what does drip mean to you? Drip primarily is if put it this way, if I could have designed the shop <laughs> the way I wanted to and I didn't need to make any money to pay rent, it would just be maybe a half a dozen of just pour over um, like pour over funnels and we would just dial in a different coffee every day um, and really curate the experience per coffee per guest. Um, that model is not um, is probably not the most profitable in terms yeah. of um, <laughs> making money, but um, that's um, I don't want to jump ahead too far, but pretty much the concept for Drip was based around the pour over bar, yeah, um, or the slow bar, as some people may call it, um, and that is pretty much our focus financially. That may make up ten percent of the business, right? Because, like you said. You cannot just sell. You're selling or, some cold brew. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> a lot cold, of cold brew, a lot of cold lattes, and yeah, yeah, yeah. lattes. <laughs> but let's get into what a drip coffee experience is—a hand brewing. You can call it, you can call it pour over. Right. Um, I've I've spoken a lot about it on the show, and if you've li- been listening to the Taste Podcast, you know I'm I'm a big supporter of that style of coffee. But for you, Nigel, let's talk about what that does. What what does a pour over do that maybe espresso and cold brew doesn't? You know, um, I'll go back to my first experience with a pour-over. Um, prior to that, I've had coffee, and often you'd pick up the bag, and it'll you'll, you'll read the tasting notes, and it'll say um, raspberries or chocolate or whatever. Bergamot. Exactly. Um, and I always thought that was fodder, and I, I thought it was more like a marketing thing. You know, it looks good on the bag. The first time I had a pour-over, that was like, properly dialed in, meaning someone developed a recipe for it, um, uh, it blew my mind. I think on the bag it said blueberries and it may have actually, no, maybe it's like citrus notes or something like Mm -hmm. that, but I could not believe that coffee could taste like that. And that was kind of the rabbit hole that I've been going down ever since. Um, yeah, I'm I'm still amazed. Even um, if we go into the different ways that um, coffee is being produced now in terms of um, anaerobics and um, natural processed coffees, um, these roasters are killing it. I don't think they still fully understand what's happening with the coffee, but <laughs> the coffee they're producing is, is just amazing. It's pretty cool that you point that out because there's the process, which is done by the coffee company, the roaster. There's the agriculture, which is done by the farm in yes. places like Guatemala and Ethiopia. And then there's the end, which is you, the multi-roaster at Cafe, who's actually manipulating and dialing. I want to talk to you about dialing because that's a kind of jargony term that baristas use, but it's super, super important. Explain what you're doing when you say you're dialing a pour over for that day. Like for tomorrow, Thursday, you'll be dialing coffees at your four locations in New York City. What will you be doing? Right. I think um, what a lot of people don't realize is specifically people who drink um, coffee in more of a passive um, approach is that coffee is a um, it's a living thing. I mean, it literally it changes within a day or two. The profiles can change, which is why you have to, quote unquote, dial it in or develop a recipe for it. Um, 
it's basically a, the, the same way a chef would add a little extra salt to a meal mm-hmm. just to kind of punch up the flavors. It's um, It could be as something as simple as adjusting the grind on, yeah. for the beans or the, the temperature of the water, the amount of beans you use per cup. Um, these things seem, would, if you watch a barista, it would almost seem like second nature to watch them make a cup of coffee, but it takes years to perfect, um, to be able to, similar to espresso, but to be able to um, diagnose what right. <laughs> what the coffee needs in terms of um, those things to dial it in to get a good recipe. In real time. So on in that real day, time. Exactly. given the, you know, the, the humidity, given the, how long ago it was roasted. Exactly. You know. And then let's talk a little bit about the actual cupping of coffees because I feel you do that as well, which is how you buy coffees, which is different from dialing. You're, when you're, 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 you're getting pitched coffees all the time, What's, what does that mean? You know, um, <laughs> which is uh, it probably it makes it a lot easier to choose coffees now because yeah. we have a lot of roasters who just like send us stuff. Yeah. Um, we dedicate at least, at least one day a week to kind of just um, – see what we got. Um, and like I said, the baristas will almost always kind of bring what they quote unquote think are their, their favorites in terms of developing a pour over menu for each of the shops. And um, it's, I, I would love to say it's um, extremely scientific, uh, well thought out um, plan, but it's really just brewing coffee. And then we just all kind of sit around and taste it because you just, I mean, it's, you're not going to dial it in. Everybody has like a set, uh, recipe or starting point for when you make a pour over coffee, even if you're making your coffee at home. You have a starting point and you'll taste it and say, oh, next time maybe I'll tighten up the grinds a bit or the water was... Extraction time. Extraction time, like the water doesn't need to be that hot. Yeah. Um, I would love to to say we have like this, um, (laughs) a set process in which we do this, but it's kind of just... A more ad hoc um, approach to Listen, it. Listen, Nigel, that's why I like coffee. That's why as a food person, as someone who writes cookbooks, I connect with coffee so much because of that. Because if you're talking about recipe development, there's no science when yeah. looking at a bunch of different s- styles of cookie. If you're doing like a cookie recipe or if you're sitting in a restaurant and you're part of your, a, a culinary team and you're talking about um, a, a salad dressing, you know, there's no yeah. math <laughs> there really. I mean, it's about let's – it's about – taste and flavor. I spent years in coffee trying to figure out why I didn't have (laughs) the palate this person had or why I didn't see what they saw. And I just come to realize that, oh, maybe they're just baking it or maybe they're just... (laughs) I'm almost certain the individuals that I respect in coffee will never give you like a concrete, this is how it should taste. This is how you should approach it. And um, I just adopted that style. I love it. And there's so many people who will have certainty in coffee. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Let's go back. Uh, Speaking of your past, you weren't always working in coffee. I'd love to hear about your, your, you know, where you work professionally and then this 10-year period of working in coffee that has led you to open Drip Coffee Makers. Well, um, I'll go even further back. Great. I I mean – I would love to say I had a career path, but when I was younger, we're talking like high school, going into college, my mindset was I just need to make money. I I probably just threw a dart at a board and said, what is going to pay me the most? Right. You grew up in New York City. Grew up in New York City. Um, Actually, like in borderline Queens, Long Island. But I always worked in Manhattan, went to university in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. I don't know why it took so long for me to get 
I mean, I live in Brooklyn now, but I should have moved close to Manhattan a long, long time ago. Yeah. But um, that said, I um, so studied economics. Um, went to the last place I landed, I was at a uh, J.P. Morgan Chase for about six, seven years. But even halfway through, I I knew that um, finance wasn't going to be my mm. end all be all. And this is me in my mid twenties, um, early thirties. I just kind of um. I would look around at the guys that I worked with and just hmm. did not want to be that when I was 45, hmm. 50 years old. And what was the what was the characteristic? Were they just like uninspired? Un- Were they stressed? Uninspired. Literally every quarter, everybody was kind of worried if they had a job or not. Um, I we worked at. <laughs> this hmm. is a pretty um, ridiculous title, but it was <laughs> I was the global credit research analyst assistant. Mm, <laughs> they mm. actually wrote that on a card. <laughs> and um, But basically it was maybe like a dozen of us um, younger uh, kids. We would get there at 5.36 in the morning and do the research for the actual analysts who would stroll in at like 9, 9.30. And then walk our research across the street to the like equities and just <laughs> say this is what I pitch think it presented. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what a interesting job, I, I'd say the least. <laughs> but I mean, um, and initially, I loved it because you know you made a pretty decent amount of money for somebody in their their twenties. But um, I just think once you get to a certain place where you kind of buy the things you want to buy and you go to place you want to go, it's just um, mm. it's not fulfilling. And and another surprising tale is I didn't really even drink a ton of coffee back then. I just I couldn't even understand why people drank it. It just um, right. but I was never exposed to good coffee. I don't even think the term specialty coffee was a thing back then. And it was still talking about coffee in terms of waves and in terms that. of the main the lexicon. I mean, I think like uh, Intelligentsia in ninety seven when they uh, launched yeah. and Blue Bottle later and those guys were doing it, but yeah, it wasn't yeah. part of our lexicon. Yeah. Definitely not. But um but I did love cafes and I loved cafe culture and um you know, I kind of was already thinking in terms of I will probably move in that direction if I ever had a career change. Cafes. Cafes, like, yeah. Like the hospitality industry. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I kind of uh, I got my wish when around 2007, 2008, when the mortgage-backed securities thing was happening. Mm. And um, we were training people in Mumbai, India to basically do our job. We had a team of maybe, I don't know, 30 people. But the salaries for those 30 people could basically sustain an entire, like, office building in Mumbai, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, makes business sense. But anyway, um, I was given the opportunity to either move to another department or, you know, they gave me a couple of dollars and it was like, you know, you can just leave, you know, severance package. And um, I chose a severance. But I was working on a business plan for about two years prior to that. Interesting. So yeah. <laughs> you, you business plan to open a cafe, but you weren't into coffee per se. You just like the hospitality no, industry. Wasn't into coffee. It was, yeah. and it was. Pro- I probably would would have leaned more towards tea. Yeah, that's as, right. And coffee would be more of a um, <laughs> uh, a necessity because um, people just didn't think it made sense to open like a shop that focused on tea. Which, in hindsight, they were absolutely right. <laughs> yeah, tea is always going to be in the margins. It's wonderful <laughs> beverage, great to talk yeah. about. But in terms of at least in North America, it's not as, yeah. not as popular. But, and, um, but once I started working in shops, and I naively thought, you know, I'd work in a shop, I'd work in a coffee shop for about a couple of months and then hmm. open my own yeah, shop. Yeah, of course. It just, was that easy. Yeah. Huh. Just, you know, I was more concerned with 
the record play I was going to buy. So for the vinyl I'm going to listen to in the cafe, in the equipment or the coffee itself. Yeah. Um, and I quickly learned that that was <laughs> the, the, the fantasy I had going on just was not um, reality. And then I also had to cope with the fact that now I'm making a fraction of what I made financially. So it's yeah. trying to sustain this lifestyle that I had. And did I want to even sustain a lifestyle? So it ended up me scaling back a lot. And um, yeah, a lot happened during that time. <laughs> so you started taking jobs at uh, cafes and learning yes. the ropes. And you went in seemingly to like learn how to like set up a shop. But then you clearly fell in love with coffee yes. at some point. What kind of places were you working at? And like what were these awakenings about coffee? It was a play. I think they're still around, actually. Um, and I, I'm almost certain he hired me because he also worked at J.P. Morgan Chase, um, and his brother, I believe, worked for Salma Smith Barney, um, a shop, uh, Cafe Sixteen Sixty Eight. I think they have two locations now. Yeah. Um, that was the first time I worked in a shop with an actual coffee professional, um, and not the owners, the, the the baristas that worked there, and um, these guys really opened my mind in terms of profiles and flavor notes and even the equipment that they were brewing on. It really just kind of blew my mind to the point where I probably got fired from that job because I just could not um, contain my excitement in terms of, like, you know, your priorities should have been dealing with customers. Wait, but you were fired? Yeah. I was either, You were canned. I was, wow. I, I was totally, I would spend all my time just brewing coffee and yeah. trying different coffees and, you know, neglecting customer service. <laughs> That's so funny. Were they roasting their own or were they outsourcing? They were definitely outsourcing. Yeah. I think they played with the idea of roasting, yeah. but um, that quickly dissipated. Who were they buying from that at that point? It's a company called Plowsh- Plowshare, okay. which um, I, I actually think they actually have a standalone shop now too. Yeah. But um, they were supplying for them and um, um, Joe, Joe yeah. Coffee. Before they started roasting their own, absolute well. legends in the game, Joe Coffee. Yeah, when will the pro shop come back? I don't think it's coming back. I don't either. Uh, yeah, um, <laughs> oh, not and, to disclose too much information, but I, I know some people who know some people. I don't know. Yeah, um, well, <laughs> it was such a treasure, and it was one of those multi roaster cafes yeah. that we were talking about yeah. before they started roasting their own, where you could go in, roll in, and buy um, coffees from around the globe yeah. on this beautiful shelf. And talk to people who knew exactly what they were yeah. doing, it, which, I mean, it's a little more familiar now, but back then it was non-existent. So let's fast forward to the to the point where you realize that, you know, drip is a thing. And, and how did you open? Because you didn't open with the traditional brick and mortar. You had a different model. Yeah. You did. It was cool. Um, yeah, I spent maybe eight or nine years uh, making my rounds around <laughs> That's the city. Great. Sorry, that, not <laughs> yeah. to understate that. That yeah. is a long time. You went in thinking three months. You came out nine years. Yeah. And you, went, you worked at some cool spots. Yeah, and and ironically, even to this day, I still feel like um, I don't know what I'm doing still. Yeah. You know, I think it's just so many variables. I mean, um, I may know a little more than the the novice, but I still feel like, you know, it's still a lot to learn. But... We started with uh, I wanted to do like a coffee cart and do yeah. like pop-ups. It's not a super high in, um, high investment uh, risk risk wise, and I was still in a state where I didn't know if this concept was even going to work. Um, would people hang around for pour overs? Um, the only good one benefit of going to school for finance and like economics and things like that is that I learned a little bit about marketing and branding mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So. Um, 
I did realize that you it doesn't matter how great your product is, you have to get in front of people. You have to you, you launched the gram pretty early. Yeah. I would imagine. <laughs> exactly. yeah. I would imagine you had the drip gram, which is a must yeah. follow. Great yeah. stuff there. <laughs> it's um is one of those things that you just have to do. But back to my point, I um I still didn't know if the pour over model was going to work 100%. And I wanted to get in front of people and talk directly to people and make coffee while, you know, I'm looking directly at them and just really um, get a feel for if the ramp up for people waiting for their lattes in the early 90s, you know, people, it seems weird now, but that was a that was a pretty big deal that somebody's going to, one, mm-hmm. wait three or four minutes for a cup of coffee and then pay $4 for yeah. it, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and the pop-ups we did, it got to a point where that um, the spot in front of Brooklyn Museum, like as customers that I still talk to on, on a regular basis, we're like um, <laughs> the relationships that I developed just by making people coffee, you know, it's it really solidified the idea that this could Let me ask you this. So you'd roll up to the Brooklyn Museum with this cart, and what were you selling? Were you doing only pour-overs, or was there some urn coffee? Initially, it was only pour-over. Wow. And then um, because it was, like, in the middle of summer, we, like, eventually had, like, a little cold brew um, Mm -hmm. pot, you know, um, cold brew dispenser. But, no, no urns. I was very adamant about um, no batch brew coffee. Yep. I know... um, some would disagree, but I really don't believe you can dial in a whole batch of coffee consistently. You, you may, you know, you may trap lightning in a bottle a couple of times, but I just, it's about consistency. I agree. Not, I just don't think that, um, I don't want to sound like I'm a complete proponent because we do have batch brewers in all the shops, which <laughs> ironically didn't happen until like a month before we were going to open because I was still on the fence if it was necessary, but also don't, I didn't want to exclude. That's the key. Yeah. Because that's the the dance because you don't want to be the guy who gets the headline who says, you know, blank coffee roaster doesn't want you to put milk in your coffee. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that happened with, uh, I mean, Blue Bottle, it happened. It happened with some other guys. Yeah. yeah. You need to be inclusive, but obviously you're not a huge fan of batch brewing, but right. you got to offer it. You got to offer it. And yeah. honestly, um, the batch brewing, especially at Bushwick, was a gateway. Yeah. Because we would batch brew like, you know, we had a standard Colombian coffee. But then on occasion I would like batch brew some coffee that was um, – I didn't think was good enough to get on the pour-over menu but was still pretty pretty good. Mm-hmm. And if we had a lot of it, I would make batches of it. And it was a gateway for a lot of people who came in and thought they knew what coffee was. I mean, that's pretty much how like I got into it, you know, just tasting something different. Let yeah. me ask you about back at the museum days when you're just doing the cart. When you were you said you you, you were trying to find out what your c- customers wanted. What were you learning when you were when you were serving these coffees one at a time? I think the main thing I learned is that if people perceive value in what you're doing, and not even necessarily the end product or what you're doing for them. But if they perceive value in the service that you're providing, they they will wait. Um, I think um, a lot of people initially stop just out of curiosity, but um, I, like I said, I still have a lot of um, customers from those, like I call them my OGs. Mm-hmm. Um, I still have customers from, you know, that, you know, still reach out to me now talking about that cup of coffee that they had 
on the corner on in the summer. We we play with the idea of doing it, you know, like doing some pop-ups there. But I, I think now it's a little, might be a little saturated over there. <laughs> yeah. Do you do any catering at all? Do you ever like roll into events? Because like, where am I going to find this cart? Because I've actually yeah. personally never only been in your shops. I've never seen the cart out. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna be more vocal about it. I mean, I love we, it. we do do a lot of pop ups, but it's it's almost always kind of the day of. I'll like take a picture on Instagram mm-hmm. and be like, "Oh, we're here." But I do want to make that more of an um, more of a focal point of the brand because it was the origins of it. Um, a good friend of mine, um, he took some pictures that we're gonna actually use when we finally get a website up and going Mm -hmm. Um, because I do want to tell that story. That's how the story, I think that's lost on a lot of folks who just found Drip. Um, But if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't be here. Yeah. So now (laughs) this day, right now you have four locations, Soho, Williamsburg, Bushwick, and um, Brooklyn Heights, which is near and dear to me. That's in the Clark Street (laughs) Subway station up in Brooklyn Heights, right that's by the where, promenade. That's where we met. We met there. I, I yeah. rolled in. I had a bunch of coffees. <laughs> I used to live in Carroll Gardens, not far. Um, and then we did that interview. But man, I, it's in a subway station. Tough yeah. spot to open a shop. Tough spot. Tough spot. But I even before I was into coffee, I just I never comprehended why someone just didn't open it's just so a regular coffee shop there. I mean, definitely. I, I mean, you you may or may not know this, but that spot went through so many iterations. I mean. Before us, I think right before us was like a guy making Cuban sandwiches. Mm, yeah. Me personally, I don't know if I would eat that kind of <laughs> food yeah. out of in a train station, but um, I was like, just sell coffee, you know. Um, it's doing well? It's doing well now. Um, yeah. Went through a lot of changes in that spot, but it's, um, yeah. I know you're not supposed to pick favorites, hmm. <laughs> but um, that's probably my favorite no spot. No way, outside of Bushwick from the original. I I love Bushwick for what it was and yeah. what it what it spawned but um that spot is just i think it's just so indicative of something that you would find in new york um yeah yeah only in new york i mean the clark street (laughs) station is a -a one-of-a-kind station it's got that yeah that boats uh you know architecture above it and it's got this incredible neighborhood vibe and brooklyn heights is its own community yeah I, I mean that was our first expansion after Bushwick and I was I was kind of nervous about the spot but then as soon as we got there it was just the trail into COVID then they closed the train station for like almost eight nine months oh my gosh that so um oh. I mean I knew going in it was going to be a slow ramp up so I kind of yeah know, prepared for that but um but now it's it's like I can't keep up over there. I love that. Love to hear that. It's the one I always go back to. Okay, for our listeners, I'd like to like walk us into one of your locations because I want to paint the picture of what you're what you're doing there. Between you've got your espresso, your drip, and then you've got your shelf. Take us through what's what's happening when you walk up to a drip because it's honestly very unique, and to me, it speaks to me in such a great way. It's um, (laughs) if you bought a book. And I've I've bought a couple that's like how to open a coffee shop. Yeah, they literally all have a similar layout. They'll tell you where to put the menus, uh, you know, the flow, um, and it's designed basically to get customers in and out as quickly as possible. The pour over bar is prominent. That's probably the first thing you see when you walk through the doors in any of the shops because I want to I want folks to know that this is not. One is not a typical coffee shop, and we're not just here for the act of commerce. This is kind of um, 
your spot. This yeah. is a, especially at Bushwick. I mean, um, some people literally took, I mean, took that very literal. Mm-hmm. Like it's definitely like the neighborhood spot. Yeah. I intentionally don't have menus on the wall. Um, I didn't want it to be a, just a place of commerce. Uh, the only way to spark those conversations is to kind of engage. Um, yeah. If you want something, you can look the barista in the eye and just ask them for it. Um, and so far, it's it's working. And like you said, it is unique. And it's one of those things where it's in the beginning, you're like, is this going to work? Because you're like literally doing the opposite of what you should be doing if you want a quote unquote successful coffee shop. Yeah. And um, You're breaking many rules. Yeah. You're <laughs> bottlenecking, which is pisses people off. But with, with the exception of Soho, which I feel like is a more kind of like people do want to kind of grab and go. But even there, I, I think. It's hard to predict what people want, but I truly believe that most people don't want what everybody thinks they want. <laughs> um, and they may not even know they want to not rush back to work. Mm-hmm. Maybe they need this two, three, four-minute conversation yeah. over this pour-over. And, I mean, there's no way to scientifically prove the ROI on, you know, <laughs> intentionally creating a bottleneck at a pour-over bar. But I truly believe that that's why we're still hanging around. And if you go to Asia and Europe— you know, the c- cafe experience is slower. Yeah. Intention- it's intentional. And I think a lot of uh, American coffee stores are the opposite. Yeah. And I would never say – I actually on um, a few of the sandwich boards, specifically the one at Soho, that's like the slogan. Even on the web the web page, the landing page we have, it's kind of slow down to have, have coffee. Yeah. Which Smart. is the antithesis of what, you know – the purpose of getting a cup of coffee is. And again, it goes back to, I feel like people have heard that term, like, oh, I got to grab my coffee and run. But I don't I don't know. I, I don't think most people want to grab their coffee and run. Definitely know? not. And it's yeah. the coffee connoisseur is growing. I have to say, too, it might sound a little precious in, in our conversation, but, man, your aesthetic is, is rad. Like, <laughs> matte black everywhere. Drip is a great logo. The serif is there. It's a serif font. And it just has a, a real energy and vibe. I think that really goes back to the brand that we created. Because yeah. <laughs> it's almost embarrassing to say now, but the lo- actual logo was supposed to be like a placeholder. Like I, hmm. I just picked that font and I was going to send it to like a graphic designer and say, I want the logo to look like, look and feel like this. And um, I just never got it to the graphic designer. And then when we had the cart made, I sent it to the guy to put on the cart. And then once it was there, it was like, yeah, now I have to own it. And, yeah. But like you said, it, I don't know. It just it just works. Yeah. It's I, a really nice font. Yeah. Um, okay. Back to the taking us through the, the what a drip situation, what, what a drip location looks like. You've got your espresso machine. We'll get to that because right. I have a question about that. But then you've got your shelf, and I think that's yeah. really important to note. Dayglow in L.A. is another place that does this really well. Yeah. You've got the shelf, and it's not your product. You're not roasting coffee, to be clear. You, no. you have no, you know, probot in the back. You don't have, like, this, like, big roaster And no manifesto. desire to do that at oh, all. <laughs> and that's amazing. Personally, I love walking to multi-roasters because – What's on that shelf right now? Let's talk. Let's get into some of the coffees that you're selling. When you're walking in, you're looking at all these different bags. They're different. Yeah. And they're different not because it's what we bought and what we have to sell. They're different because out of all the coffees that are currently available, we feel like these are the best that in the next couple of months that the world has to offer. Yeah. 
And um, as corny as that sounds, um, it was one of those things that, in my mind, I wish I had 10 or 15 years ago. Um, there's places in on the West Coast, I think, um, um, Barista, that's actually the name of the shop. Yeah. Uh, he, um, they did, I think he moved away from it um, a little bit, but um, I got inspiration from people like that that was, that was doing it back then. And um, I think I wanted to make the focal point of Drip a little more, a little less about the coffee shop and more about the coffee itself. Yeah. And um, which is why we kind of chose to, and it may have been a bit serendipitous as well. Um, go, I'm going to back up to the card again. When I used to reach out to roasters and I'll say, hey, you know, um, clearly I'm not going to buy, you know, 50 or 100 pounds of this stuff. I just want enough to get through a weekend or so. Mm-hmm. There were a few that were kind of like, I'm not going to sell you 12 bags of coffee or even less than that. And But there were a couple who were like very like excited about it. And immediately, you know, obviously, you know, I would go all over social media and say, this is what we're doing. This is where we are. And eventually it got to a point where people would call us and say, hey, you know, I'd like to send you some coffee if you, you know, if you're looking for a roaster for it's the next time you do a pop-up. A great point because it, there is some cachet getting on the shelf at a drip. Yeah. You <laughs> talked about black and white. I've seen East One there. I've seen um, I've seen Fritz from Korea, which yeah. which we, we've talked about off mic. I love those guys. I've seen those guys, Brady Wine. Brandy, yeah, Brandy Brand, Wine. Brandywine. Um, Brandywine's dope, man. Maryland, <laughs> right? Uh, Delaware. Delaware. Yeah. Sorry. Um, Delaware. I, yeah. They're, um, and again, they're, they're another roaster that found us. Yep. You know, um, then once we had them on the shelf, then people are like, oh, yeah, I've, I've heard. I'm, but, and that's another thing. I'm so amazed how initially I thought it was like a niche thing for people who are really into coffee. But the the umbrella, it's, it's, it's a really, it casts a wide net coffee. It really does. I, I'm surprised at how many people are really into like specialty coffee. Do you think it has something to do with the price point? The entry point is low for a luxury good because we're talking about luxury goods here. This is luxury coffee yeah. when you're paying 18 to 23 to 50 even a bag. Still pretty low. It is low, but I, I do think the industry in, in general um, needs to do a better job of explaining that, you know, people are getting these coffees at a bargain because yes. um, a lot of them really should – costs a lot more in terms of, especially if you want to make sure that everybody's being treated fairly. A lot of people, you know, they, they have these elaborate um, write-ups on their webpage and they'll talk about how they're taking care of farmers and stuff like that. But hmm. there's very few uh, roasters who are very adamant about where they buy their coffee and making sure that the money's going back to the people who's actually producing it. And, um, until people start shining, shining a light on that and making it make business sense, because unfortunately it does have to make business sense. I, you know, um, Yeah, I think the, co- the price of coffee, because some of our coffees, we on occasion have some bags that are like 50, 60 bucks. Yeah. Um, and even then I don't have a problem, like people don't have a problem paying for it because they even at 50 or 60 bucks, that's still a bargain for like a, rare geisha that's probably only going to be available yeah. for 
a couple, a couple of, of excellent yeah. three-day yeah. geisha yeah. Uh, that sh- that's you're selling three ounces for forty, and it's it's yeah. a bargain. <laughs> and just to echo conversations we've had on the show with nicely able with Jeff Watts with Akira Akudo. I'm just name dropping my friends in coffee, but they've all been on the show. <laughs> they all agree with me, which is like, and Nigel, you, that coffee is too cheap. Yeah. We need to pay more yeah. for coffee for a lot of reasons, but it, it really goes back to where we're getting it. We're getting it from places very far away that many times have some human rights violations. Have There's there's issues within these regions. Yeah. And if you work with the right people who pay the right amount, you got to charge it back. And to add to add another layer of complexity, you have a lot of coffee shops that are doing the bare minimum in terms of where they source their coffee. Yeah. So the consumer doesn't um, is un, is unable to distinguish between a drip and the bodega or the coffee shop on the corner in, in their neighborhood. Um, the term specialty coffee is not something that's known to the average coffee consumer. So the industry has a bit of work to do in terms of educating. I once was at a coffee show, and there was a, a gentleman who who sells cold brew, and it's a namesake. And I'm not going to say his name, but it's a namesake. And I asked him straight up if he'd ever been to a coffee farm, if he'd ever met a mm. coffee farmer, um, and he said no. And this is somebody who sells a namesake product. Yeah. And when I asked him about some sourcing details and pretty basic things, he, he kind of – didn't know what to say. Now, that seems common in coffee, yeah, unfortunately. Sadly. sadly. And if I was to, if I did start Drip three months after I left J.P. Morgan, I probably would have that same approach because it would just be numbers. Huh. Um, I, I didn't even take into, I didn't even take into uh, consideration the people that are going to be working for me because I just approached it from, I buy widgets at X, I sell them at why? Yeah. And my profit margin. And that was pretty much it. And I think anybody who approaches, who gets into this industry, or any industry really, and if your bottom line is the only thing you're concerned with, then you could care less. Like, why would I go to a farm? I just want to buy these beans for as cheaply as I can yeah. buy them and sell them for as well, much as I can It's literally commodity coffee. Yeah. They sell it by the exactly. weight on, exactly. a, on, a, on a market that's based in London, yeah. and there's no tasting of the coffee. It's Not commodity yeah. coffee. It's like commodity anything. Let's go to the espresso machine. So that's the third element of your cafe, yeah. and I think that's a very interesting topic. Um you make money from espresso. We love espresso. You know, who doesn't love a cortado or latte, flat white, yeah. iced yeah. oat? <laughs> but if you talk to coffee professionals, many don't love it because you're doing some things. One is you're just kind of taking the flavor profiles, the beauty out of the coffee and making it into something that's very kind of uniform. Nigel, I have to ask you, what do you think about espresso? I think espresso is gross. No, I'm just kidding. Ah, <laughs> but, that's funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> just kidding. Just I'll cut out the just kidding. <laughs> the just kidding. <laughs> but, you know, anyone who drinks a cup of espresso and was like, oh, my God, this is delicious, is either deluding themselves or they're, you know, they're trying to get one over on you because I don't think anybody drinks espresso because it's delicious. Facts. I don't care Facts. how, like, how skilled you are on the bar at pulling shots. Um even some of the single-origin coffees, because we almost always have a guest espresso. I mean, they're exciting. Like right now we have um, 
an espresso blend that's actually cut with a cinnamon process, um, perfect for like the holidays. And um, it's like a hint of cinnamon. And even that on its own, just as a shot of espresso, it's still not the greatest. No. Which is why um, milk drinks are such a big, you know, yeah. a big draw. You cut it with something. And, and right. I think if you have a nice creme on a shot and you really want a fast coffee experience, yeah. There's better. I mean, you you know when it's bad. Yeah. You're at like literally at the Starbucks cafe in your hotel lobby, and you're getting a shot there. Oof. Uh, you're braver than I. I wouldn't even. I wouldn't even attempt. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's got a. But you make money from espresso. Yeah. That's Drinks. um. Full disclosure, probably like 85 percent of the business is the espresso machine. I mean, um, I love the fact that people can come and get a pour over, and I love the fact that our numbers have gone going up dramatically over the past couple of years um, to the point where that's most people, that's their regular drink now. They'll come in and look at the list and pick something and say, you know, I'm going to have a pour over. Like that almost became like a common part of the coffee experience for a lot of folks who made me a couple of years ago, probably not. Um, but that said, I, that is kind of why we do put an emphasis on having the best espresso machine you can buy, um, keeping it tuned so that it is running because it is, it is unfortunately, the, the, the crux of the business. Yeah, and you got to make sure that your baristas know what they're doing. But there's wonderful baristas all, always available, yeah. it seems. Yeah, it's, um, we've been really lucky with that. Um, I don't think I've put out one help wanted ad. No. Um, everybody, they just kind of, they'll reach out and they're like, hey, I've worked at this place. I would love to work for Drip. Well, it's a credit to you. I mean, your reputation in the industry is, is extremely strong as a great boss and also somebody who sell, knows what you're talking about and has, sells great coffee. There's like yeah. a combination there. So, Nigel, credit to you. I, I've, I've talked to many in the industry and we all admire you. So Appreciate that. I think yeah. I just had a lot of really crappy bosses so yeah. I just do the opposite <laughs> I love love to hear that um, can we shout out a few more coffees that you like companies that you that you like that maybe are, are going to be on your shelves who do we have now um, Brandywine um, Barn is coming what's that Barn um, Barn they roast in um, Berlin yeah German roaster they may have one other shop in the city that carries them but um, I don't know if they do pour overs um, Fritz is on is on the way. Yeah, finally. Uh, who else is? There? So you are getting some some coffee from overseas. <clears throat> yes, yeah, some yeah. some overseas stuff. I I slowed down a bit um, only because a part of me felt a little guilty about um, ordering these coffees and having them shipped across the world. When you know, it's a uh, a company called uh, Resident. They roast uh, in Gainesville, Florida, which seems so weird to me, but um, amazing coffee. Um, there's a lot of, um, roasters right here. Um, Methodical, South Carolina. Yeah. Um, yeah, actually I think I, I need to place an order for them. Yeah, well, Methodical's but, great. I've yeah. had their coffees. But there's so many like amazing roasters here, but oftentimes I'll get samples from places and I'm like, okay, I gotta have that. So. Camber? You ever mess with Camber, them? Camber, yeah. Uh, a couple months ago. Yeah. And this, uh, this, uh. Passing fall, we had had Camber. Yeah, out in Bellingham, love those guys. Yeah. Great, delicious coffee. And to me, I don't know. Maybe I, I just I was unaware or I was oblivious to it. But I had no idea there was this many roasters stateside. I mean, um, for years, um, a lot of uh, it's a company called Manhattan. I think they're roasting in Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. 
Not um, to be confusing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but um, those names were always thrown around in specialty coffee as, oh, those guys over there are doing it the best. Yeah. But um, there's some, some, some roasters right here in the U.S. Have you had Big Face? I had Jimmy Butler on the show, basketball star. Uh, he does Big Face. You know, uh, we... Um, uh, one, a, a buddy of mine, Juan, just joined a team. I think this is first first week. I think he works directly with Jimmy Butler. I think that's like his go-to guy. Yeah. He'll like call him to do, do some work. I Full disclosure, I initially kind of backed away from it because I just thought it was some guy with money who yeah. can afford to do all these Thought things. the same. Yeah. The same. <laughs> but he is like the real deal, um, which, is, um, which is good because I think uh, – Going back to what the industry needs, I think the industry needs uh, more evangelists like that, people who are, like, really vocal about coffee not just being this commodified product that, you know, you can get on a corner. It's it's amazing. I'm going to link to that episode in the show notes are my conversation with Jimmy Butler. Jimmy Butler represents um, a real coffee nerd. Yeah. And there's yeah. no A-list, there's no B-list, there's yeah. no C-list celebrity that I know of who's that vocal yeah. about coffee. So, yes, he's an athlete, and you think athletes do things for weird reasons. But, man, I think what he's doing is remarkable, and more people need to talk about it, yeah. that he actually is valuing coffee and, and making it cool. Yeah, and, you know, it's anytime someone lends their celebrity to something like this, it's, it's a win-win. It really is. Where do you want to take Drip? I mean, this question's big. We're wrapping up. I, I I love to know: Are you thinking expansion beyond New York? Are you thinking about dialing the the four locations you have? Yeah, I think um, <laughs> after COVID, um, we um, were pretty excited about the offers we were getting, um, and pretty much said yes to everything. Which is why we went from one to four shops in the span <laughs> of two years. Wow. Um, that said, that was done with <laughs> no infrastructure. It's just been me kind of, you know, like I mentioned before, just me keeping all the plates spinning. In the immediate future, I'd like to really just dial in, you know, <laughs> what hmm. we currently got working. Um, there's, there are some things in the works that I don't want to talk about now mm-hmm. only because they may or may not happen. But um, any expansion from this point would be almost at a glacial pace because it has to make business sense. It can't just be expansion for the sake of expansion. I think a lot of um, a lot of my peers who you know did have that kind of growth aren't around anymore because I think they were they were expanding for the wrong reasons. For you know, I don't want to speculate of what their reasons were, but I think if you're just growing for the sake of growing and not because you feel you have something to offer that no one else is offering. I think a lot of times your message gets muddled. Uh, Great uh, point. Yeah. I think it's it's re- really um, important to note that sometimes expansion isn't a good thing and sometimes no. you need to dial back. Yeah. Nigel, we asked all guests in the Taste Podcast, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world to write this book, what would that book be? <laughs> Don't laugh, but it would probably be um, – for the love of pasta, something weird like that. Shout, um, yeah, do it. I would totally get my Stanley Tucci on, and um, <laughs> yeah, I, I do need to broaden my cooking horizons. But I feel like I make pastas on the menu at home a, a lot more than you know, the family would probably <laughs> want it to be. Pasta is uh, a yeah. beautiful thing, Nigel. Yeah. I literally, I just started actually making like 
making my own dough and making my own pasta, which is oh, a game changer. You're rolling out. Yeah. Like Nona style. You know, <laughs> nice. I mean, yeah, your, your book was pretty inspiring. <laughs> yeah. After oh. The, yeah. <laughs> oh, sweet. Thanks. That's kind of you. Yeah. We did feature some, some pasta in uh, food IQ. Well, Nigel Price, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Wow. Thanks for the invitation. This is amazing. Well, I mean, the work you're doing, again, anytime you add a megaphone to these cortis, it's a good thing. Oh, well, yeah. I appreciate it, and I, I will continue to drink your amazing <laughs> coffees. Thank you so much. Thank you. James Freeman, welcome to This Is Taste. Thanks for having me, Matt. I'm really excited to see you. I interviewed you about maybe 10 years ago, 14 years ago. I don't know. Time is different. X number of years ago. That's um, only pre-COVID and post-COVID. I agree. And, and it was when you were releasing your book with 10 Speed. And I, I just, I love that book so much. It, it really was a pioneering book that merged recipes with coffee intelligence with like essay writing. Yeah, I it was fun. I I, I love the collaborators. Caitlin did the food yeah. section, and all her head notes are so fun and smart. And then the she as is her way, she's very rigorous about taste testing. So they 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 are easy to make. They're very yeah. they're very good to make. Um, Clay, the photographer, he really did a lot with structure yeah. of the book. He was the one that came up with like grow, roast, drink, eat, and then there was Tara Duggan. Yeah. Such a good journalist. Definitely. And she did a lot of the grow, like just the expository writing about um, coffee origins. And then it was a good eye, a, 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 a careful eye on on my ebullience in terms of, <laughs> of writing. And then, you mean your wordiness? <laughs> guilty. Yeah. yeah. And then, um, yeah, and then I just sort of had fun writing about well, like these subjective feelings about coffee like what does it feel like to roast coffee it's like it's your book and then god in a cup or god in the cup i feel like both of those books really informed me as a coffee drinker and they were mm. just really pioneering books that's nice to hear <laughs> now james i wanted to have you in i have so many questions um coffee's a real micro theme here and we love talking to all sorts of folks you just got back from japan about I a month did. ago i did what was i came back i always get round trip tickets you know, I mean, why? Damn, What's, I know. So tell me a little bit about uh, what you're doing there. And I know our mutual friend Kira Kudo said I should ask you about Kyoto and what you were doing in Kyoto and what <sighs> the heck you were roasting and brewing. Jeez. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Akira. Um, Great guy. Shout out to Kira. Exactly, exactly. He says what I think. So <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's kind of thrilling to hang out with him. Um, yes, Kyoto. So to step back, um, I have been only kind of tangentially involved with Blue Bottle Coffee since the Nestle transaction, you know, going from sort of uh, influence without authority now to kind of like leaning into the power of my own insignificance, <laughs> um, which has been oddly freeing. So uh, what happened is before COVID, I was in Japan and uh, Korea and I had just been to the Starbucks Reserve Roastery in Nakameguro, you know, 20,000 square feet. Yeah. Beautiful. Got untold millions, billions of yen. Um, and and that's the pinnacle experience of Starbucks, right? And it, it's big. It's glamorous. It's, it's, it's gaudy. It's got a pizzeria. It's got cocktail bars. You, you know, mm -hmm. that's a pinnacle experience. So on the, the way back home on that long flight, I, I was just sort of interrogating that concept within myself. Like, what is the pinnacle experience? What, what might the pinnacle experience for Blue Bottle Coffee be? What would I 
say that the pinnacle experience ought to be. Because back in the day when I opened cafes, like they were very, very thoughtful and autobiographical. Yeah. And, and I, I chose those to be the pinnacle. Cafes experience. in San Francisco, in yeah. New York City. Yeah, anywhere. Yeah. Um, you know, but, but that, that phase was over. And, and so like, okay, well, Howard needs 20,000 square feet in pizzeria for his pinnacle experience. I really need 400 square feet in a record player for <laughs> my pinnacle experience. I want a like, small room, modest, beautiful. And I want all focus to be on the coffees, the extraction of the coffees, every little moment, every little spoon. Let me jump in and ask you. Yeah, Espresso machine, in. are we doing a drip setup? Are we doing siphon? What's uh, the setup? Not, it, well, the, the thing in Tokyo is basically none of the above. None of the above. Uh, so what, I, I came back and I was like filled with enthusiasm for this idea, <laughs> blithely thinking that this enthusiasm would translate into action within the company. And it translated into meetings is what it translated into. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, and then COVID. So I, ha- I have a certain amount of compassion for for the people running the company quite well through COVID. That's not easy. Yeah. Nobody was laid off. That was admirable. Oh, cool. So maybe it was going to be a cafe, a a permanent cafe in Los Angeles, maybe not. So design, design, meeting, meeting, nothing happened. And then then this idea, then it kind of sunk, uh, you know, and I was a little bit sad about that Mm -hmm. because, like, I was – I wanted – what I wanted. Like, that was my story at Blue Bottle. you had the record player picked out. Yeah. (laughs) You had the records picked out probably. Are we talking, like, post-punk uh, no, Matt. You're a clarinet player by trade, so is it classical? No, I, I mean a, a little bit. I, w- I wanted, I was, you know, very inspired by Daibo's Cafe and Daibo's book. Do you ever read no. um, the Daibo Coffee Manual? There, There's a beautiful letterpress. It's like 35 pages long. My favorite book on coffee, Nahoko Press. I think he's out of print, but maybe not. And he talks about the records he liked. He liked, um, you know, Bill Evans a lot. He liked... Um, Keith Jarrett, the Cone Concert, which was surprising to me, a little bit hippie for Mr. That's Dibble. amazing. There's a great shop in Seoul that had Keith Jarrett on all the time. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. It's a good – Keith Jarrett That's, definitely fits with coffee. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. No, 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 no. It's fun to talk about records. Yeah. So, so yeah, I what I learned long ago was I cannot be responsible for 100% of the playlist. So the idea was like collaborate and, mm-hmm. and it, it actually to speed up the narrative – the very second day I was in Tokyo, I went with a few colleagues, dear colleagues at Blue Bottle, and we went record shopping mm-hmm. for this thing. So it was my, my input and my friends. So you're saying this thing, and this thing is potentially this 400-square-foot box coffee shop in Kyoto that you're working on opening? Yeah, No, it opened. It is like – it opened. It's open. What's I, it called? Well, it used to, it used to be open. It's, it's temporary. Everything's yeah. temporary. Yeah. Um, you know, every cafe is a pop-up, right? This lasted for about six weeks. Oh, so, okay. And you were, you were at the bar and pulling, pulling shots? And- no, no, no. Um, so it's in the first Blue Bottle Kyoto cafe in, near Nanzanji Temple. It's this perfect room upstairs that, that seats four people. And there's a table. Uh, Joe Nagasaka designed it, but it's an 100-year-old machia. There's a table, some Bertoya chairs. Uh, and and there's a little bit of in- infrastructure right outside the room, and so what my colleague Benjamin Brewer and I, over the years of COVID, and after came up with these ways of making coffee, that I don't think have been made. I, I don't want to sound 
grandiose, but but it was very unusual ways of making coffee. I love this. Please say more. Okay. Because there isn't <laughs> okay. a lot of innovation on the drink side. I mean, that's unfair. Let me strike that because there is a lot of innovation, but we don't really, as consumers, see it everywhere because it's so specialized. Right, right. I wouldn't call this innovation. I would I would call this simplification. Okay, great call. That That's what I would call it. So we ended up with these the, these courses, four, four or five courses, and a couple little sweet bites to eat in, in between a couple of the courses. And the first course was just this little refreshing sort of cascara yuzu little soda. Wonderful. Know? It's beautiful. I, my mouth is just sm- <laughs> smacking thinking about <laughs> that. Good. Yeah. And then we had a, a tasting course of three coffees to taste um, that you could taste at the same time. And it was super fun coming up with these coffees. One was a very famous farm in Panama, Finca Debra. Yeah. A gesha, a, fa- a very beautiful gesha from them. One was a Kima lot from Yemen, the, the very first place coffee was was produced as agriculture. I mean, obviously, it, it arose naturally in Ethiopia, but it was agriculture in Yemen. And then the other was a, a coffee from Fringe in Goleta in California. So we had basically a 500-year-old mm-hmm. growing region and a 20-year-old yeah. growing region. And pe- people, that this lot from Fringe, F-R-I-N-J, was a nine-pound lot. It was an extraordinary James lot. Hoffman and I talked about that that lot when, on his episode, and I'll link to the show notes with James. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, wonderful to hear about California-grown coffees. I mean, holy yeah. cow. And and Jay Rusky is doing great work. The The coffee is beautifully detailed. There's the, a wide range of, of like, you know, California is expensive, so California yeah. coffee is going to be expensive, but it goes from expensive to, to sort of eye-watering based on, you know, the lots and... The, and so, James, they're... let me ask you, just in U.S. dollars, what is the cost of uh, of this tasting, these flights? And, and I ask because, you know, I tell me first, what, what are we... What I think, are... you know, like that sort of the freedom of being a line item in a marketing budget means I don't have to care. Yeah, totally. But I think it's around 75 bucks. Oh my gosh. It, it's just remarkable. And this is, we'll talk about the value of coffee. To get truly the most exceptional coffees in the world, and this is something I've talked about on the show, for only, for $75. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, of anything, is incredible. Right. To get a $75 bottle of wine at a kind of a, mediocre Italian restaurant in Manhattan means it's kind of sad. Yeah. And you're getting this exceptional from three distinct growing regions roasted in, and were they all done um, drip, hand, hand brewed? Yes and no. Uh, so Benjamin Brewer had this idea of separating the extraction from the filtration. What a name, by the way. Just gotta say. <laughs> exactly. Guy in coffee with the name Brewer. I know. I know. And his initials are BB. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So yeah, he had this idea. So and and also it worked as theater too. So we we had two. Imagine three very thin, elegant glass cylinders with about 250 milliliters of water in them, hot water, and then we just dusted about eight or ten grams of these extraordinary coffees on top, very gently, and then you got this snow globe going that you mm-hmm. could just watch. You know, listen to Bill Evans or whoever Miles Day. No, Miles came later. Bill Evans, or, or there was a Ryuchi Sakamoto record mm-hmm. that one of the team picked that was beautiful with this chorus, just like the, it, it, it really underscored sonically what, what you were seeing. And so it, that was also, that extraction was very flexible, two to four minutes, mm-hmm. just let it snow globe down and then filter it. Benjamin had his favorite filter paper just in a Hario dripper, just because it yeah. fit. Like a standard comb. V60. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the, the dripper geography didn't matter. It was more about the paper. 
So let's talk about paper. Mm-hmm. I know, sorry, listener, we'll get this will be short. <laughs> filter paper is super interesting. How do yeah. you have a how do you have a favorite filter paper? Oh, because you know you just have to be deep, deep nerd. But but also it, it's like it's not subtle when you taste the difference. Oh, I agree. It's not subtle. Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah, trust me. So you can suck on paper towels. You can lick cardboard, or you can have something yeah. really beautiful that, that and refreshing clean that you don't yeah. taste that paper pulp. Backing up. You started roasting coffees at a farmer's market while you were working as a professional clarinet player in San Francisco. I, actually, I stopped clarinet okay. playing and, and then started. And then, so there was no yeah. overlap. But you essentially were selling coffees at a farmer's market. I'd like to get, for our listeners, a little sense of, of that time when you were <laughs> selling it out of, out of these markets. And the second part, quickly, is when you exited the company and you you've just illustrated how you're still involved but on a kind of peripheral level what how was the feeling when you when you sold your company to Nestle oh geez okay let's take the first question first yeah. and then I'll take the second question yeah. second and then I'll go like lie down for a I know minutes. I know this is therapeutic <laughs> but I just have always wondered because I think I met you last before you sold so let's go. right that was a long time ago a long time ago um yeah coffee the farmer's market it was a in retrospect, it was a great time to start with coffee, and it was great for a, a lot of reasons because it was, bef- you know, people would tell me, like, uh, why are you starting a coffee company? It's so saturated, and what they meant was, first of all, I loved that metaphor, saturated, as it applied to coffee. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, because there's Pete's and Starbucks, and obviously nobody will make things that that are any different from or better than those two companies. It still still is a mentality today, by the way. Oh, that's interesting. For many yeah, of the public, I'm but anyways, so blissfully unaware of exactly. like the general mentality of the public, it's it's kind of nice um, to be sheltered in the yeah. citrus orchards of Ojai, California. <laughs> yeah. So, but I just want like always for me, I wanted to make what I wanted to drink and see. I wanted to make a cafe that I wanted to go to, so I would make that cafe, and then people would come, and that that was great. I wanted to drink coffee that I wasn't seeing or I wasn't drinking. And so that's why I, I chose the roast profiles that I roasted because of, of I just I just wanted that thing. You wanted to taste the coffee. You wanted roast profiles that actually illustrated the agriculture and not over roasting into a quote unquote dark or quote unquote French roast. Yeah. I mean, yes and no. Yes and no. I mean, this this I think what you say is what a lot of coffee professionals also say and think and believe that they and only they have some privileged insight into what a coffee actually is. It's like— um, I love it. Way to sm- slap, smack me down. I love that <laughs> shit, James. You did that in such a nice way. But oh, thank I, you. I love it. I appreciate—no uh, snobbery zone here. So let's—, let's Oh, yeah. No, no. And, and I'm not calling you a snob no. I, because I think this is an interesting and important point is like we have a subjective insight into what we think coffee should be just like— Somebody roasting at Pete's has a subjective insight into what he or she thinks coffee should be, right? And whose subjective insight is more valuable, whose is more interesting, that's not for me to say. I know which one I prefer. Yeah. I know which one I'd rather drink. I had an amazing Gesha at La Cabra, an espresso just now, which could mean after my Hayes Valley espresso, why I'm talking so very fast. <laughs> yeah, I think we there's a way it. to slow down <laughs> The speed on your on your, on Spotify or something. As like an that. aside, before uh, that we re- started recording, I walked over to the the fifty fifth and Sixth Avenue location, which is right by our office, and I go there maybe once or twice a month. I, I like it's in mm. my rotation, and I see you on the street. And we just like <laughs> see each other randomly, and then 
you're, you were heading there as well. You yeah. had never been to that location. No, no, no. It's just amazing. Like, I walk in, I literally think about you every time I walk in. Oh, and that's then, sweet. Well, because you're the brand, and I love the uh-huh. brand, and I'm a big fan of Blue Bottle. But then we went there, and you had a Haze Valley. Right. Just yeah. A- that's what I do when I go to a Blue Bottle shop, have a Haze Valley espresso. That's fun. It's like, talk about Proustie and, like, this taste memory, right? Yeah. It's deep. So you're at the farmer's market. You're roasting at a profile that you liked. Um, yeah, that and- intended to be lighter than the surrounding, you know, the, the, the semi-sphere of coffee roasted at that time. Yeah. And because I just liked what I liked. I, I liked um, these tastes that, that I thought were very interesting. I had been a hobby roaster before. And a lot of time, you, you know, what brought me to the farmer's market was this insight like, whoa, coffee is fresh food. At the yeah. time I was roasting, I've said this story a lot, but there's literally no place I could go in the Bay Area where I could get a coffee, a coffee beans that I knew when they were roasted. Nowhere. The, the, the date stamp. It's remarkable to think about a time like that. But and it wasn't that long ago. No, we're not talking 20 about— 20 years. Yeah, a lot has years. changed. It's a, a lot brand new changed. industry. Yeah. We have to remind everyone, this is such a brand new industry when you think about all of food culture in the, in the world. This is mm. a very young industry, and— you're roasting with a lighter roast, and you're opening a cafe that is probably doing some little things a little differently than other cafes. <laughs> so, what, what do you—describe those early cafes. Oh, yeah. I mean, just at the farmer's market, it was crazy. It was nuts. Like, I'm going to prepare every coffee to order. Yeah. You know, I didn't invent that. You know, Monmouth Coffee and yeah. came up with the 70s and even before and in, in the— Intelligentsia was hand-brewing, I'm the, sure, in Chicago in 97. Probably. Yeah, probably. Um they, you know, Japan in the 70s, the, the whole notion that this third wave, I, I feel like, is such a uh, misguided attempt to to privilege our particular moment in coffee above all others that I, I don't particularly agree with that, that term. But, yes, I was going to be the crazy guy at the farmer's market with big kettles of boiling water making coffee to order one at a time. I was going to pull shots to order, and mm-hmm. I had, like— little bits, little steam pitchers, and if it was a macchiato, I would steam milk to order in a little pitcher and latte in a bigger pitcher at that time in San Francisco. if you, <laughs> I would call it like the sourdough bread starter approach to making steaming milk because they ha- would have these giant milk steamers, and then they'd keep adding yeah. milk on top, and it's like— It's like Solora method for wine. Right. When did the first milk hit the bottom of that pitcher? And then just like the sound, the sonic environment, the scream mm-hmm. of this re-steamed milk being steamed to like 500 degrees, you know, that, that was very unpleasant sonic environment to be in, too. So we tended to steam milk at a lower temperature so it would be maximally sweet, pulled shots to order, very slow— you know, a, a lot of coffee in the portafilter, um, slow extraction to develop this this sweetness, which is kind of, you know, thought of as being old-fashioned now. A little bit, but when you talk about sweetness, and this is a reminder, you know, sweetness isn't necessarily the addition of sugar or sucrose. It's actually no. flavor profile in coffee that I consider just interesting. It's when mm. coffee deviates from the burned or blah to, like, something else, and that's mm. what sweetness is to me. Yeah, there's actually very little sugar yeah. in roasted coffee. Exactly. So this word that people use, that coffee professionals use, sweetness, I think it's a should be used more specifically among coffee-educated people who've done a lot of cuffing because when I, I think it's a, a 
misguided to use the word sweetness when you're talking to the general public because it is in fact not sweet. You got to have a little fruit. That's acidity. why I had to clarify. Yeah, I think no, I'm it, glad it's you confusing. did. Yeah, I'm glad you did. Yeah, and and so like there's some fruit acidity. There there are other things going on, but especially when you're you're making coffee espresso that's supposed to have steamed milk on top, then all those fruit acids I don't think go particularly well with steamed milk, which is why I still like a, a sort of a more developed yeah. roast level in an espresso and a, a shorter, thicker shot. Because like what tastes better with milk, like like Maillard reaction kind of tastes or cranberry juice? I choose Maillard. Mal- Can we talk that. about espresso for a second? Let. Because I've, I've asked uh, many about espresso and, and Jeff Watts comes to mind, uh, mm-hmm. one of the founders of Intelligentsia and we Definitely went long about talking a, a joke about Jeff, um, about why he hates espresso essentially and how it, it kind of with pressure and the way it's roasted, it kind of like the farming element and the flavor profile gets like leaves the coffee. Do you do, oh. agree or disagree with this? Oh, I agree with the kind of the moralizing stance. I agree with this objectification of of espresso as a thing that should be a certain way or should not be a certain way. You know, I I think it's, what was it, like 10 or so years ago, a very interesting thing happened. And it, I mean, to step back, people in coffee have a, have a sense that we're on an escalator, always continuing to evolve, to innovate, to push the industry forward. But I actually think we're on a pendulum. And, and, you know, fashions, tastes in coffee swing back and forth. I swing love that. Back and forth. I so agree. Media is the yeah. same way, by the way. Media is we, – we're not an escalator. We're a pendulum that's yeah. inside. Yeah, yeah. And so many, many things that people are thinking now about coffee have been thought before 20 years, 100 years, you know, X number of years ago. So an interesting thing happened in co- coffee, in espresso, and it was sort of inevitable because if you remember drinking like gimme coffee in mm-hmm. – New York in what year was that? 2007 or Seven, 8. Yeah. It was like the triple basket, you know, filled with coffee, super, super dense yeah. shot. And I kind of like that. I still kind of like that I mean, that shout to Gimme, wonderful, wonderful company. I, yeah, I'm a yeah. huge fan. Yeah, as as am I. They were one of the few people in New York in those those years that really knew yeah. how to make coffee. Yeah. And I, I like that taste. I still like that taste. It doesn't taste like any particular growing region. And that's, yeah. You know, and it doesn't taste like any particular agriculture. It, the question to ask then, is that right or wrong? And I don't see that as a right or wrong question. If what you're looking for is particular insight into the agriculture or the varietal of the coffee, then of course, espresso should not be the thing you order at a cafe. And I think the foundational element of coffee buying and paying fairly and having terroir and giving mm. the farmers as much credit as the barista, I think the tendency is to say, yes, we need to have that that flavor profile that is from a region and recognize it. And espresso is smashing that model. That's kind of the argument against, you know, espresso. It, yeah, that's true. And and that's, that's a legitimate argument. But then you have to look, look at what you're selling in your cafe. You are selling 80%, 90% of the drinks you're selling are drinks that people are putting steamed milk on top of. Yeah. And hence, you're unable to taste the agriculture anyway. So you might as well give them something that pairs beautifully 
with milk. Grifoli, and we all love a cortado. We love lattes yes. and oat drinks. And mm. there's it's wonderful, especially at certain times of day. Some people like having a morning latte or cappuccino with co- mm. with milk. Um, I, I kind of like, you know, draw a parallel between, you know, the where we're at right now with coffee and like cocktail culture in like the early 2000s, mid-2000s when mm. – 80% of people were ordering vodka sodas and Bud Lights, <laughs> you know, and but then there was like the Manhattan and Negroni. Right. And look where we are now with cocktails. I'm hoping, my hope is that in 20 years, coffee will ultimately be more brew drip, hand brewed than espresso. But that's just- I, I would like to believe that's true. However, I, I mean, if you look at what, how people are building cafes now in the U.S., uh, obviously there's, there's, constraints around construction and budget and things you can't do in the U.S. because it's hard or expensive. But I, I, I do think there's so much emphasis now on batch brewing, even in the, the specialty shops, that how can you make an argument that coffee is special and in, like incredibly rarefied if you're saying like, oh, cool, 20 seconds, here you go. I don't know when, you, you know, this has been sitting for 20 minutes in this pot that is not beautiful. It's true. I mean, that's why hand brewing, what Nigel's doing at Drip is so interesting. And exactly. If, but in taking that four to seven minutes to get a coffee, obviously that does not work for a lot of people in their daily routines when they want coffee at a cafe. Does it? I mean, that, please, that's please the question. Back. Like, yes, who, anybody, especially in New York, you go walk into a room and it's like, who here is not very busy? Right. Nobody raises their hand. Right. But who here has some sort of agency over their schedule? Who here has some sort of choice in the matter of when they wake up and what they do? A lot of people have that kind of agency. So it's really about the prioritization of that time. Some people would prefer not to wait in line for a coffee that takes a long time to make. I understand that. Uh, But if you design the store in a certain way, if you make the performance practice of making coffee underscore the rarity and the privilege that we all have of paying five dollars for something extraordinary then maybe people will prioritize their time in a little bit different way however if you build a shop that just looks like any other shop and you have a brewer that looks like any other brewer and you want them people to think it's it's a privilege to have a coffee that's way too hot that takes 20 seconds to make (laughs) And then you're going to end up, if you're careful, you're going to have a timer on it, and then you're going to end up dumping that brewer out half of the time after 20 minutes. Like, isn't that a sight to behold? Somebody dumping really precious rare coffee into a sink. Yeah, into the drain. You know? James, I love that. I want to leave it there because I think we could go all day about. Yeah, file that under. Don't get me started. No, no, <laughs> it's it's so really cool to hear that thought. Your thoughts on that because um, it's definitely something I I'll think about. Rattle my walker about the, that all day long. <laughs> the next long. twenty years is going to be interesting. Got to ask you um, about coffee at home. Mm. Um, how do you make it? How do how do I make? It? Yeah, what's your preferred method? Oh man, um, I do like a little cappuccino to start the day. I'll make that from from time to time. What's morning the gear? To morning. What's the gear? Oh. Oh, oh, Matthew, um, there's a lot of gear <laughs> in my life. I've got um, my go-to is a Linea Mini, um, which is very nice. Oh, I you know, love that. that. I, I, I love that machine. A while ago. I, I look at that in like catalogs and like one day. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. One day. One day. As a New Yorker, your counter space is limited too. So. Yeah, true. So there's that. And I like thinking about the past 
in terms of coffee, the history of coffee, I, I'm much more interested in the past than the future, um, or I spend more time thinking about it and how the past might inform the future. So somehow I ended up with a 1958 three-group Faima Urania lever machine that opened Blue Bottle Williamsburg oh. in 2010. Is there wood involved in that machine? No, 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 no. Oh, it's, it's like from the 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 peak, you know, mid-century Italian design. It's it's a beautiful machine, blue glass, and and it's finicky. It's finicky. Mm. Uh, but I have that in a little barn on my ranch, and I'll make espresso there. That's very texture. It's all about texture. Usually, there's robusta in the blend that I'm making. Wow. And what percentage? Uh, seven to twelve. Wow. Usually. Uh, and it's all about texture. It's buttery. It's thick. It's, you know, 24 grams in, 18 grams out. It's, it's a very retrograde, transgressive espresso in terms of the modern standards. But I like, you know, I'll spend 30 seconds drinking it and an hour tasting it. Ugh. And speaking of Robusto, I had a Win Coffee Supply 100% Robusto recently. Oh, yes. It was cool. It's great. I, she sent me an anaerobic Robusta that I thought was da- – I made it actually a little bit on that machine, that old fine. Yeah. Um, I think she's doing incredible work. I mean, there are very few people that I think you can call coffee innovators. Yeah. But I think mm. Sarah is totally yeah, an coffee innovator. Supply. Check yeah. it out. Yeah, I'm um, a big fan. Let me ask you about um, like getting coffee into like the pop culture sphere. I think there's plenty of vanity projects you see. <laughs> uh, of course, with like the push button machines, you see that like uh, Nespresso uh-huh. always has like a John Hammer or one of those guys. He's so hunky though. Yeah, definitely. Or Clooney. I think it's Clooney actually. Mm, yeah. Push buttons. This all leads up to Jimmy Butler, NBA star, mm. truly a coffee nerd. I've had him on the show. Oh, that's cool. And are you familiar with what he's doing at oh, Big Face? Only, yeah. I mean, you know, you have just picked the exact wrong guy to talk about popular culture or sports. So I've only heard like a little bit. I've heard he's he's a very famous basketball player. Yeah. And I've heard he's really sincerely into making good coffee and drinking beautiful coffee. And buying good coffee and selling it, hopefully, at an equitable rate for the farmer, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, all of those things I'm in favor of. And and I do think that it's sort of an interesting time where that coffee nerddom, you know, that otaku kind of used to be unattractive. And now this this very (laughs) famous person is being pretty deep, a pretty deep nerd and and bringing that to a lot of people. It's... You know, my my hesitancy is like, oh, well, what is he selling? Like, what is actually being sold sure. in that cup? Yeah. You know, and I'm not saying that it's somehow bad or wrong to have a 16-ounce big milk drink, but but it's like how how are people experiencing that coffee that is in the bottom of that big, big cup? I mean, he's he's selling Cup of Excellence coffees. He, awesome. He's definitely thinking about roasting. Um, I can't wait to have him back to talk more about it. A lot it. of people think about roasting. Uh, it's, what do you mean by that? It's hard. You got to do it. I I mean, it's so crazy to think about roasting and and Mm. it's at the end of this massive chain from farm to middleman to get the hauling. I mean, Mm. we could go through all the process, but then you got to, got these green beans and you got to figure out something to do with it and you can really mess it up. Yeah. 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 Coffee occupies a very interesting place in society 
because many, many people make coffee every single day of their lives. And if you do something every single day of your life, you're apt to think you have this privileged insight into how it should be made or what it should taste like. That's the tendency. That's I mean, with tendency. anything, if you watch movies every day of your life, you have a tendency to have this point of view that's exactly. pretty firm. Yeah. You know, and, and, and so, like, when you go to have a, a rarefied dinner somewhere, it's like, well, that's not exactly how I make a lime souffle every day. You know, people just don't have that thought, but they become experts in their own minds and tend to think that coffee is is easier than it looks when actually coffee is much harder than it looks. Yeah, I think we've established that a bit in this conversation and other conversations. Let me ask you a couple broad questions. And yes. I, I, I just like to get a sense of when somebody comes to you and says they like their coffee strong. Mm-hmm. What do you say to them? I say bravo. <laughs> I, you know, like, the, the, what are, are you talking about in a professional context, like when I was working in a cafe yeah. and somebody would do or that? Or when you're just talking to a general consumer who's, who's interested in coffee, but it's like, you know, I like what I like. I like, James, I like strong coffee. Yeah, I think in my time in hospitality and listening to people talk about coffee, and I've listened to a lot of people talk about coffee, I think getting into the particulars is interesting and sometimes important, but really looking into the emotion behind those words that they're saying. Because I could say like, okay, well, strength in coffee is generally measured by this metric called total dissolved solids, TDS. And I've got a little machine. I can measure the coffee you think is strong and then rah, 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 rah. <laughs> um, And that, you know, if somebody's nerdy enough, they might want to. And then we'll talk about NTU. Um, a measure of turbidity, nephelometric turbidity units, which is, I think, one of the most underutilized metrics in, in coffee. But anyway, getting to this emotion, when somebody says, I like my coffee strong, what is that emotion? Like, I'm, I'm afraid I might not get coffee I like. Mm. You know, is it fear? Is it like... It's not going to hit my sweet spot. Right, right. right. I'm I like, I just want to feel safe and loved, you know? And you can't hug them <laughs> in a cafe. Yeah, um, but you can you can say like, all right, like what was the last? When was the last time you had a coffee that that made you feel like it was strong enough? Like what was that like? How did that feel? Yeah, we you have know, such so, emotional connection exactly. to co- our coffee experiences. Why we often say, I had the best coffee on the auto route in Italy. It was like the best coffee of my life. But ultimately, right. coffee maybe maybe was good, but. Oftentimes, maybe not. It was yeah, just the experience. And, and that's the allure and the myth of Hawaiian coffee, right? Right. You know, you, you go on your honeymoon. It's like, I had the most amazing Kona coffee. And, you know, and what's the emotion behind that? It's like, I've never felt more loved that day. Yeah. And as we know in the industry, talking about coffee, Hawaiian coffee is, you know, it's fine. I'm sure mm. it's beautiful on the Big Island coffee being made, but it's not the top. 10 there are many, many instances of Hawaiian <laughs> coffee not being particularly well-produced or delicious. There's there's a guy, Miguel Meza, he has a, a roastery called Paradise Roasters, and he's sourcing a lot of Hawaiian coffee, Kau especially, cool. um, doing beautiful work, incredible I'm, I'm work. glad you shouted somebody yeah. out because I'll definitely look look to buy some coffee. Yeah, I'm coffee. a big fan. Um, next question. What do you say to somebody when they come to you and say, James, I like Colombian coffee? <laughs> Well, it's the richest kind. Why shouldn't you? <laughs> no, I like Colombian coffee too. I think it's it's that that same like well, what is the impulse right. to having that or is it somebody that's like not familiar with uh 
the milieu of a specialty coffee cafe, and they like it's like a little test. It's like, oh, is somebody going to make me feel okay mm-hmm. if I ask this? Or is it come, somebody kind of coming in with a swagger, like this is what somebody told me I should say, but there's a little bit of a fear yeah. behind that. That like record shop, you know, bartender kind of Ex- snobby exactly. vibe going on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so looking at the emotion behind an utterance I think is going to give one more insight into how to treat the utterance, how to respond mm-hmm. to the utterance. But as a matter of fact, there's what? Colombia is the second or third biggest producer of coffee worldwide. Yeah. I think Brazil is number one probably. Brazil has always been number one. Yeah. Viet- the, the only question in my mind is Vietnam number two now. Yeah. Uh, but Colombia has like Grana, Esperanza, you know, some of the most glorious, glorious producers in the world. And it's got a range of tastes. It's like saying, I like American food. <laughs> well, yeah, or I know? like French wine. Like, yeah, it's exactly. Kind of, which is, I, I think I'm kind of repeating something I've brought up on other shows, but it's just like when you think about terroir and region, you got to f- unpack a little bit more than country, right? Who? Who? You've got to think of who Great. is making this thing. Great. And that's really hard because yeah. like the baseball card element of coffee, like who who are the cool guys and who are the not, like that's impossible. I mean, I don't. For personally, have any idea how to f- keep track of all that stuff? <laughs> good, good. Yeah, I gave up years ago. <laughs> I mean, so that's the that's the challenge because we want to like be like, I love uh, this finca. Uh, you know, what did you say? You had a finca that you in in Japan. You 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 had you named a coffee and and like I oh finca Deborah yeah, yeah Deborah. Yeah. So like like finca Deborah. Like I'd love to have finca Deborah. Like you mm. just named this thing and. But, like, how do we get it? Who's roasting it? You know, Finca's a farm. Many people are roasting Finca Debra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how, when was it roasted? And when? how was it being made? And, you, you know, how – yeah, there are man, many, many ways to go wrong with an extraordinary coffee. Yeah. I mean, it's just why it's really complex to kind of figure out um, what does terroir actually mean outside of these general flavor profiles that we – kind of connect with regions. Yeah, I think of terroir as just being a metaphor, like a way of thinking about a taste and in a very, very general way. But then you have to, like, who who are the people along this chain that started in Panama and, 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 like, ended up on a plane or ship and then to a roastery and then... You, you know, it's amazing. It's the who that the who. counts. A few more questions, James. It's yeah. been a real delight to have you in. Um, I'm delighted too. I'd love to get a sense of a few brands. We talked about um, Win Coffee Supply, but are mm. there any other brands that we should be looking for? Roasters, cafes, all. Mm. Like who, who excites you right now? Oh, well, I just came out of La Cabra, the new cafe in Soho, which is very pretty. And I got a beautifully made, very limpid espresso uh Gesha, very soft, mm-hmm. not a, like sometimes espressos <laughs> of lightly roasted coffee can be a little bit like a punch in the was mouth. Was it a Panama, you said? Um, it, all I saw was the varietal. Huh, interesting. I, uh, I mean, no, they. I'm sure they were very clear. Yeah, I just <laughs> forgot. Yeah. In, in the menu, it I just escaped me. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, one of the reasons I like La Cabra, I, just from the farmer's market, there was this ethic in the farmer's market, we, we sell what we make. And the thing I admire, in addition to the coffee about La Cabra, is that they make their own croissants. Yeah. They make their own vinoiserie. They make these little cardamom knots that are calling out to me. That you brought us. That I so, brought, yeah. So kindly, if anyone's ever had the cardamom knots from La Cabra, James has just dropped a few for Pat and I, and we're, we're quite happy. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. good. But I, I admire 
places that make what they sell, like Tandem in uh, Maine, yeah, does does the same. They're their former oh my Blue Bottle colleagues. They're so oh, cool, so good. I One, love their uh, malted cold brew. I've never had it. It's so good. Yeah, it's yeah, so yeah. good. Yeah. So so I I when I was in my most creative phase with Blue Bottle, we were making what we sell. I, I was fortunate. My wife Caitlin was the pastry chef, and she was making incredible things, beautiful things, extraordinary things that went beautifully with coffee. And so I, I like working harder than you have to. What, yeah. what makes me a little bit sad is walking to a cafe where they seem to care about everything, but then that care, that hard work stops at the case and, and, and you know. You mean the pastry case? Yeah. 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 yeah it's yeah. definitely. What about like a multi-roaster cafe? Because I, I think I'm hearing you appreciate an all-in mentality, which mm. I also appreciate. I love mm. like places like Intelligentsia and Stumptown. Um East One in Brooklyn, beautiful coffees there that are yeah. doing everything. But I also enjoy a good multi-roaster. Oh, my gosh. That is such an interesting model. I talked to Akira about that because I love going. There's, yeah. there's some in L.A. Yep. that I go to, and there's all these incredible coffees from all over the world, great roasters, amazing things. And I don't, I don't know how they make a business out. I don't know how you can pay your bills with all that shipping and keeping the the stuff fresh. I'm I'm glad I don't have to do it. I love going there. I I go to one um, that you know regularly has like a coffee that's uh, mm. thirteen, fourteen, fifteen dollars. It's always beautifully brewed. Dayglow. Be- yeah, 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 yeah. Beautifully brewed, and I pre like I sit outside their little shop and I drink it and and like it. And I th- I just don't know how they do it. Yeah, I always wonder if like doing retail and doing multi-roaster and how do they upstream the retail into the pr- program and how do they keep their inventory moving? Thank God I think not Los my An- question to answer. I think Los Angeles and places in New York, I know they're opening in Brooklyn, they certainly have the, you know, the cus- customers who will come in and drop. That's good. Real money. Yeah, it's yeah, good. I will. Um, what kind of advice would you give anyone young getting into specialty coffee right now? As a, like, profession? Or, yeah, or? like a profession. Like, could be at the barista level, it's their first job, or it could mm. be somebody who's rising and is a young roaster, um, works it. Because I know there's just a lot of professionals out there who listen um, and love coffee. Yeah. It's such a different time. I, when I was starting, like, the internet was around, and you could look things up on it, but it was before... Like it was basically taking the joy out of these personal discoveries. And I thought coffee was like very personal. Everything was very personal to me. And then I could also make mistakes that didn't live forever and that were not visible by everybody in the world. You know, pre-Instagram, pre-Twitter, I could just make these mistakes at the farmer's market, apologize for them, make somebody another drink, and it wasn't like a scarlet letter um, on me. So it's a very different time in coffee. And if somebody wants to be a professional, it's very tempting to just like look on Instagram and think you've learned something about coffee, you know? So like I would say like delete Instagram and like apply for a passport and just go places, Mm -hmm. go places, drink things, and then work someplace. You know, don't work for a, a few shifts or a few weeks or a few months if you if you've gone to Tim Vendelbo's cafe in Oslo, you know the first thing I noticed? The floor. Mm. It was immaculate. It was... Terrazzo is a cool design. It, no, 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 no. It was clean. Just the cleanliness it of it. Right? It was clean. It was a roastery with not, without a single coffee bean on the floor. 
And it takes a while to learn how to do that, to learn how to sweep, to learn how to, to, to see the one bean on the terrazzo that's over in the corner and to pick that up. So that's a skill that, that you have to practice in the real world over many, many shifts, many, many hours. So that would be the advice is to, you know, I, I suppose it's Mr. Miyagi advice, wax on, wax, wax off. On, but, patience um, too. I mean, yeah. and, and certainly it sounds like skipping steps can happen, but it's not the norm in coffee and you just got to gotta put, put the time in. Right, right. And, and to think about what you want, what you think is cool, what excites you, just because somebody is doing it in Copenhagen doesn't mean it's the right thing for you to do. I agree. Well, I want to close by asking a question I've asked many in coffee. Jeff Watts, Nigel Price of Drip, Nicely Able, Jordan Michaelman, James Nicely. Hoffman, Ashley Rodriguez. I mention all of those folks because I really respect their opinion and we've had them all on the show. And James, let me ask you, what should coffee cost per pound? A lot more than it does. I'm sure every single coffee professional would would have told you that. There's a great, like, four or five pages in Dave Eggers' book, The Monk of Mocha, great book, where yep. he talks about, he just lays it out, every hand that coffee touches before it gets to a consumer. And it's a lot of hands. So, you know, coffee is built on this very colonial, very exploitative model. And that model is still very, very deep and very, very present in the coffee. Cafe owners are sometimes complicit in that, like, free refills and treating coffee as a commodity, treating it as it, as, as if it were not precious mm-hmm. and touched by a hundred hands before it gets to a, a guest. So, yes, coffee should be more because people all along the, the chain ought mm-hmm. to be paid more. That's a great, great point to, to close on. Um, I always want to like probe and say, should it be like $60 a pound? Should it be $80 a pound? Should we drink less of it and treasure it? I mean, all of those things. Right. I'm hearing that because I, I think it's, we know it's not, people don't charge enough and people don't value it. That's just really the end of this conversation. Yeah. Value people value the pharmacological effect quite, quite, yeah. <laughs> extremely highly. But um, they don't translate to those effects like, gosh, this thing that just made me smarter and more energetic and more charming and and reduced my capacity for feeling depressed for a few hours. Maybe I should pay twice as much. Yeah, that's both legal and readily available. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So great point there. James, we asked all guests on taste if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time and you have no deadline or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world to create this book. I know you are a bibliophile. Mm -hmm. You've published with 10 Speed in the past. What would this book be? Yeah, I'm actually thinking of a book. If I had it with no deadline, then I wouldn't do it. So I've learned I need to operate with a deadline. So that's a hypothetical constraint. I'm going to have to add a deadline back in. So, yeah, I want to write a book. I'm sort of talking to people about writing a book using Blue Bottle, my experience with Blue Bottle Coffee, as a metaphor for sort of this clash between creative businesses and and the where we are in late stage capitalism and 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 you know and and this idea to paraphrase Mario Cuomo I think you know that that creative businesses like mine are often founded in poetry and scaled in prose and and that's hard that's a hard place you know if if you're 
wanting more poetry, but but then the pressure is for a more prosaic sort of approach, then that that can be difficult and sometimes um, shattering even. I think that a book on creativity and skill and creativity, but mm-hmm. also, of course, having some coffee detail in there. Oh, so much coffee detail. And and just that word, you know, is scale a noun or a verb? Ugh. Or when I started, scale was a noun. Yeah. And it was something you weighed shit with. Yeah. 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 It's so interesting. And, and I hate that term, actually. It's, <laughs> it's just it's against, because me, as you know, media is not a scalable business. No. You got to do it one by one. Same with coffee. Yeah. I agree. James Freeman, thank you for joining Taste. Thank you very much for having me. This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 